I'm Alex Rybczynski. I'm Angie Czech. I'm Barbara Stewart. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I'm Marin Green. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Valerie Jacobson. And this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Riley. Before we continue, remember this is just a podcast. We're a 501c3. We are not a replacement for the medical advice that you get from your doctor and um, should not be misconstrued as such. This is informational, educational, and um, I hope you're entertained. I hope that this is fun for you. This is the second solo cast I've done on this podcast. I used to have an old podcast called the OB-GYNO which was rebranded to Beloved Holistics Radio, and that was always a solo cast. It was always me just kind of talking about a specific topic, and a lot of people like that, but this podcast that I have now, the Holistic OB-GYN podcast, is... Uh, mostly me interviewing people who have some insight into how we can care better for one another and care better for the planet. And, um, and it, with the goal of, of rising up the quality of women's healthcare in our nation and around the world. So if you like anything you hear here, you can go to belovedholistics.com. You'll find everything there, my practice, my collaborator program, and all of my uh, podcast information. I also have a new shop on the new website that just launched that has all of my favorite trusted brands. You can go there and get discounts on everything from Organifi to Full Well Fertility, Paleo Valley to Quicksilver. I mean, I've got about 20 brands that I work with. They're all products that I use myself and that I recommend my clients going to all the time. So I reached out to these companies and I said, hey, would it be cool if we just had like a discount program? And so they set me up and I love it. So in order to keep the podcast running, I do have to have some sponsors. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not charging like a million bucks for an ad read like Joe Rogan. I'm just trying to meet my bare production costs, which is not too much money. And fortunately, I found a couple brands that are totally in line with my values and my approach. And um, the first of those is Fit for Birth. They're a brand new sponsor. Fit for Birth is run by James Goodlatte. It's the first program of its kind that has been geared towards training healthcare professionals and exercise uh, specialists in how to counsel women before, during, and after pregnancy on exercise. It's the longest-running holistic pre- and postnatal education company. Um, James is a good friend of mine. He is coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Can't wait for you to hear that episode. Through James's program, which is called Fit for Birth, they offer personal training for pregnant and postpartum women. They also have pregnancy health courses where pregnant women can actually go and take the course themselves, and they offer education credits for any fitness or healthcare professionals out there who want to just become a little bit better at working with women, especially around this really delicate process of pregnancy. We've been telling women for years, don't exercise, rest, blah, 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 but really movement and, and going through a wide range of movement and play. And these, these things are so important, not just for the healthy pregnancy, but also in getting your natural birth process going and recovering in the postpartum period. So James is really, really good at what he does, and he's got a whole team of people behind him at Fit for Birth. So please go check them out at fitforbirth.com. And then our other sponsor is Full Well Fertility. This is a company who's run by another friend of mine named Ayla, and she has built this thing from the ground up. She and her team at Full Well have created the highest quality prenatal nutrition products on the market. Their multivitamin is the one that I'm recommending to everybody. Now, there's a lot of good ones out there. Um, like needed and whatnot, but full well from a company standpoint, they're a small company. They really, really focus on a few products and and just do it right. So I'm really, really, really grateful 
to have them as a sponsor on the show. Their prenatal vitamin is loaded with all of the vitamins, all of your fat-soluble vitamins, your vitamin C, your vitamin B. It's got B, a bunch of B12 in it, niacin, riboflavin, biotin. It's loaded with choline. Normally, you have to eat a bunch of eggs to get your, your recommended daily allowance of choline, but they've loaded it into their capsules, and um, I can't recommend enough. So if you want to check out Fullwell, go to Fullwell, fullwellfertility.com. You can use code BELOVED10 and save 10% off your purchase. Um, the reason I have sponsors here is that I initially was doing it as a donation base to support the podcast, but you know the reality is like the, the production costs really add up. And like I said, I'm not getting rich off this. I just want to offset those costs. And it gives me the opportunity to tell people about brands that I really believe in. So super, super helpful if you go and support these companies, because knowing that they're getting some sort means that the people that they're serving are also having access to their great services and products. So, all right, let's get into the podcast. So the title of this solo cast is Discerning the Lighthouse. When I was on in college, I went on a trip called Semester at Sea, where basically 700 college kids get onto a retired cruise ship and they sail around the world. And you stop in various countries along the way, and you're taking college credits when the, when the ship is in motion. And then when the ship docks, you get out and you explore the country for a week, get back on the ship, go to the next place in course, you know, in your courses, all college credits until you can get, get to the next port. And then you get off and you go out and see the space. So we went to Puerto Rico, Brazil, South Africa, Mauritius, India, Burma, Vietnam, Hong Kong. Then the, the, the ship stopped in mainland China. Um, did I miss anything in there? I think I got it all. And then Japan and then back to the West Coast of the United States. And while I was there, I took, took it upon myself to only take classes related to healthcare or the environment. And what I found is that all across the world, big corporations, big money, the exploitation of nature, and at the, at the often detriment of the, of the health of our ecologic systems, but also the health of people, was, was, uh, was really put into um, sort of a lower priority. And it made me very, very deeply curious about the world. And bear in mind, you know, when we went to South Africa, we were on the ship. One of our lectures on the ship was Dennis Brutus, who was imprisoned with Nelson Mandela on Robben Island. And he was able to talk to us about the challenges of Grand Apartheid, right? For all people, but especially black and colored uh, men and women. And so we got some really, really insightful lectures along this trip. I became very, very thoughtful. I started reading all of Howard Zinn's work and the role of the United States and big corporations and how the big Federal Reserve was started. And, and since then, I mean, that was back when I was in college. I've then since then gone through all this medical training and, and, and I've emerged with one important question or two important questions. Who am I and what is my purpose? And I found that my purpose is to bring healing to people in the planet. So if you haven't heard my first solo cast which is really where I talk about why did I become so disillusioned with the conventional model? You know, my med in my medical training, I started off enthusiastically enough. You don't take your MCATs and go through all of the book work. I mean, you're covering like a textbook every couple weeks, thick textbooks every couple weeks. Why did I become so disillusioned? I mean, I was so enthusiastic in the beginning. And, and I, think that, I think that what I started realizing is that, oh, like there's so much money in this system that we kind of lose the forest through the trees. And then, of course, as I started edging my way out of that and getting into my own practice, I realized that big pharma, big men, and all these insurance companies are dictating how I care for patients. And I cover all of this in SoloCast 1. So if you want the details of that, you can, you can totally, I highly recommend going back and listening. I think it was episode number 20 on the podcast. But what, what I was you know, really left with, especially over the past couple of years, which was the ultimate thrust out of the system, was that there's no room for curiosity. If I have all the answers, then what's the fun of the practice of medicine? And so 
you know, what I'm talking about these past couple years, of course, is the COVID thing. Yes, the vaccine worked out for some at best. Masking is probably helpful if you have symptoms, but otherwise, like, why are we covering our faces and isolating ourselves from one another and not letting kids see our face? Like children need to see facial expression in order to develop. So it is common sense that if you're sick, that you should stay at home. If you're sick, you should wear masks. You shouldn't be sneezing on each other. You shouldn't be sharing glasses if one person's got a really nasty flu. That's how it just used to be. But now it's no longer about whether you have symptoms. It's this sort of dictated way to live life. And I found a, a, I found that very challenging because every time I asked questions, they were sort of taken as challenging the narrative. And maybe I was challenging the narrative, but anybody who's curious is just, I, I was just trying to, to get more information. And I'll say about isolation, it's definitely not that helpful. You know, we need one another. We, we are not isolated silos, no matter how much we want to believe that we're not. And I, I think children, like my daughter, Penny, who's just over two years old, we went to, you know, we go to the gyms and we go to the parks and she's very socialized because we maintained, largely maintained our social life, um, you know, in as the responsible ways we could. You have to take other people's feelings into account and what they're comfortable with. But we set boundaries for ourselves and Penny is way advanced compared to these other kids. And I don't think she's necessarily exceptional. I mean, of course, she's my daughter, so I think that. But I just think she had so much more richness in having people come and hold her and not have masks over their faces that she actually figured out how to be a kid, how to be a, a person. And I think she's developing more quickly. And, and this doesn't even get into the vaccine issue where we're recommending vaccines to little kids now that hadn't, that hadn't even been tested for safety and efficacy from the very beginning. And, and vaccine injuries are a real thing. There's a lot of people whose kids have had issues. They've had delays and whatnot. And all that we've got are, are, are radically insufficient reporting systems like the VAERS. I think at the heart of this whole issue is that viruses, we see them as the enemy, right? But if we were to take all of our efforts and link arms in order to combat any of the social issues that are currently facing our world, whether it be interpersonal violence, racism, bigotry, intolerance, homelessness, um, economic disparities, um, homophobia... If we want to change these giant societal issues, we have to actually look in the mirror and change something within ourselves. And so, as always, instead of changing ourselves and how we interrelate with one another in nature, we saw this virus as the, as the common enemy, forcing us not to change ourselves, but to point our missiles outward and find the bad guy out there. Couldn't be me. It has to be that virus that's causing all the issues. So perhaps on a positive note, these past two to three years have, have revealed who our real friends are. They've actually, you know, this, the, the whole situation has facilitated some very, very deep friendships and connections in my own life and in my wife's life. And I think a lot of people have started to remember what I, what I just said. If you feel sick, stay home. Stay home and rest. Like we're so caught up in this productivity cycle that if you miss work for a day and take that sick day that you're a bad employee, you know, if you don't feel well, stay home and like chill out a little bit. Put a warm compress or a cold compress on your head have some soup and just like recover. Your body's sick because you, your immune system is suppressed. Your adrenals are all out of whack. So if in a society that prioritizes biohacking over sleep in the name of, you know, quote, productivity, the issue is that we're not healthy. Like we shouldn't have to worry about a common coronavirus taking out a, a part of our population. So this was a time to stay home, to evaluate our lives, to reframe our goals and lessons, and, and perhaps for many of us to change our lives altogether. And that's actually was the final nudge I needed from the universe to get out of the conventional model. So throughout this thing, and throughout really most of recent history, 
people have been falling into this dichotomy of good and evil, right? It's what we see in Star Wars. It's what we see in every turn of turn of our lives. Even our, our, our political system is bipartisan. You're either blue or red. You can't be in the middle, pick a side, or you're taking votes away from the right candidate. And it's just, it's so, I'm so sick of it. As a physician, I'm supposed to be a philosopher. I'm supposed to be curious. I'm supposed to be an explorer of the truth. And so I have to be curious. That's my job to be curious. So what's been lacking these past couple years, and, and which is not a new issue, but it's been especially apparent, is that there's no nuance. There's no, but what about this? What about this context? You know, what if we flip the situation around? Like, let's get back into the thought experiments, you know, that Einstein and all of his friends were using in order to develop some of the most incredible laws of relativity and, and how the cosmos interact with one another and us and and get back to like asking questions. Remember the definition of science is the exploration of truth. It's not a belief system. It's not like those little yard signs that say we believe in science. It's not a belief system. It's not like there's a man in the clouds. Science is, is, a, is a rigorous process whereby we're exploring the truth of our reality. And then tomorrow that reality might change. We might actually end up finding ourselves in a new stream altogether. And now we need to reassess what things have we taken for granted as laws. So a big part of my first solo cast was what is the role of, um, or, or where did the conventional medical model go wrong? And I think for one, it focuses just on the physical body without any regard for the immeasurable aspects of the human or the patient experience. I'm going to get more into this later. Rudolf Steiner who's um, a mentor of mine, even though he died many, many years ago. I've been really studying hard anthroposophy and anthroposophic medicine. And Steiner said something really interesting. His, a lot of his philosophy revolved around this notion of the devil. And in his elaboration, there's, there's two parts of the devil. There's Lucifer and there's Armin. We always use this word Lucifer, not really thinking about what it is. So Lucifer is this heavenly, reflect. it's sort of reflective of the heavenly, um, the immeasurable, the qualitative, the story of Icarus, right? He and his dad, they crafted these wings out of wax and they were able to fly off of this, this island that they had been, had been living on. And they've got to, you know, they, they're getting closer to the sun and Icarus is just enamored with how beautiful his wings are and how he's shimmering in the sunshine. And he wants to get closer and closer to the sun. And then he gets too close, his wings melt and he falls into the ocean um, to his peril. That's the Luciferic forces. It's the, it's the kite in the wind. On the other hand, the armonic forces would be those that um, are, it's the grounding, it's measurable, it's quantitative. It's everything that Rene Descartes put into place several hundred years ago, which was this reductive model of what it means to be human. If we can measure it, it's important. If it's not measurable, then we'll just cast it aside. And that is that has really largely resulted in maternity care as a coordination of various organ systems inside of a meat suit. And if you look at each of those systems individually, hey, we can take care of every medical issue. And of course, we know that that's not true, especially in birth, because there's nothing we can really control in birth, apart from that rare, true emergency in which we need to jump in and do some, some crazy heroic surgery, right? So Steiner prophesied, or prophesied, prophesied hmm, that Ahriman would incarnate in the third millennium after Christ, which is year 2000 to 3000 AD, which is now. And then he, he also had suggested Lucifer incarnate three millennia before Christ. So three millennia before, three millennia after. I'm not a Christian. I'm just pontificating here through the lens of, of Steiner. And he said, we must balance both the attributes of Ahriman and the attributes of Lucifer. Lucifer, Ahriman, with Christ as our guide and companion. Lucifer and Ahriman, Ahriman must be regarded as two scales of a balance, and it is we who must hold 
the beam in, in equipoise. I think that's a beautiful that is a beautiful sort of starting point for today's conversation because in my practice I don't do a lot of just physical. Yes, there's some physical, but if we only take care of the physical then we miss out on the spiritual aspects of what it means to be alive. And this is especially relevant in death, which we're also going to talk up a little bit about today. So as I mentioned, I, I still think we need this medical industrial complex. It's great for acute things. Like you get hit by a car, you have an, an acute infection of the wound. It spreads in the blood and gets into your other organs, into your brain and whatnot. Yeah, we definitely need modern medicine. So we can't totally abandon that. But if that's the only way that we have, uh, the only lens through which that we can care for people, then obviously we're going to continue letting people down in so many ways. And so that's why I had to start my own practice. So that's the, that's the, that's the first thing um, I think is wrong with the, the, the conventional medical model. The second thing is that there's a lot of money to be made in every aspect of this Western society. And medicine's not immune to this impulse, right? We are willing to destroy an entire rainforest, right? If it means we can make more room for, for Costco's <laughs> or Amazon distribution centers. So doctors, nurses, pharmacists, physical therapists, chaplains, physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners, etc. All of these providers of various levels, they're all incentivized to make more money for other people. They're not necessarily um, incentivized to care for people and to get better outcomes, meaning, hey, you're healthy and you're well, you don't need to come to the doctor for a long time. Um, and that's not because they're doing it intentionally. It's because the system at large, albeit maybe set up with good intentions, is just not doing the job. And the people, by the way, that they're making money for are the people that are heads of these large organizations, these large corporations. So the outcomes related to health, well-being, disease prevention are only incentivized if it's going to help maximize Medicare reimbursements or funding from research financiers like the uh, National Institutes of Health in, here in the United States, the NIH. And again, I go into all of this in great detail in my first solo cast. So the third big issue with a conventional medical model is that there's there are some deeply seated issues with evidence-based medicine. I talk a lot about this in the first solo cast, but Marsha Engel, former editor at the New England Journal, she came out and kind of blasted the journal and the medical publication industry at large about the amount of money that they take in order to publish just specific studies that were you know, pushed along by the pharmaceutical industry because the pharmaceutical industry wants some evidence to ba to back up this new drug that they're promoting or whatever else. There's also a book by John Giardini called The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine. I highly recommend that. And then, of course, censorship is rampant. I talk about this again in the in, in the last uh, solo cast, but the uh, I will elaborate on this further, but a doctor's job is to provide counseling in order for a patient to make an informed decision. If me giving you some information about the risks of any intervention, whether it be a vaccine, a surgery, an IV med, an oral medicine, a suppository, whatever else, and that makes you hesitant to take that drug, that should not be grounds for me to lose my, to lose my license. But that's actually what's been happening these past couple of years, which is a, an overt violation of our principles of bioethics. So more on all of the stuff I just talked about in my first episode, which was episode 20, first solo cast, I should say, which was episode 20 on the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Now, for this episode, I'm going to be focusing a lot on my practice, which is called Beloved Holistics PCA. It's a private association. If you want to know what that means, go onto the website and click on terms, what is it called, terms of agreement or whatever, in the very, very bottom in the footer. You'll get to learn all about that, that type of practice. Um, and what I'm going to get into here is not a, by any means a comprehensive list. It's really a, it's supposed to give you a bird's eye view of what a truly holistic OBGYN practice looks like. So First off, think, close your eyes and think about the last time that you're at a conventional doctor appointment. It doesn't even need to be your OBGYN. You could be a, a you know, male, female, whatever. 
and you're at your you're at the visit they they have you in this like little holding area the waiting room and then they eventually call you out they don't really look at you you're moved into one room they catch your vitals move you to the next room you're like pantsless maybe you're on that crinkly white paper there's bright lights the whole room is just sterile and uncomfortable there's like weird charts that are obviously paid for by Pfizer on the wall about how you need this drug for whatever and and um eventually a doctor comes in and and uh you don't really get much time to talk and it doesn't really just feel very cozy. <laughs> I have, I don't go to the doctor very often. I haven't been to one for many years, but I remember that being a distinctly uncomfortable place to be. So the reason that this is not going to be a comprehensive list and the reason I'm not going to write a book anytime soon is that in my criticism of this first doctor's appointment and what I'm trying to build, I don't have all the answers. Like I said, if I had all the answers, this wouldn't be very much fun. So. As new information becomes available, um, whether it comes through well-executed studies free of publication bias or if it's through my direct experience, my practice is naturally going to flow with that. It's going to change. And that's why this is so much fun. You know, it's, not, it's really not that much fun to behave as if I have all the answers. And I know a lot of doctors do that because their practice, you know, the big medical system at large expects them to act like they have the answers. And actually, a lot of patients also really, really want the doctor to have the answer. They're just praying for that magic bullet. And unfortunately, for many issues that really, really require a, a holistic lens, there's not going to be a quick fix. So, so in my practice, um, I mentioned it's a private association. We generally have long sessions. It's 60 to 90 minutes. I sometimes use acute treatment like antibiotics, but mostly we're doing a, a great exploration into the root causes of disease. There was a, um, an article in the British Medical Journal, I think it was 20... 2002, I think, and, and they actually looked at how much time does a person have with their doctor and how much time do they get to speak to their doctor. And this is why my, my visits are so long. But if you actually look at the, that back to that last time you went to a conventional doctor's appointment, think about how long did you get to speak about why you were there until somebody interrupted you, whether it's the nurse or the doctor or whoever. This British Medical Journal study found that the average patient gets 22 seconds to speak before their doctor jumps in and starts to take over the conversation. So for me, those 60 to 90 minutes, especially in the first visit, are generally me listening and writing notes and nodding along and trying to see you for who you are. What I'd like to really talk about is, is what are some of the modalities that I use? Now that, I've, now that we've got your story, we understand your fears, your past experiences, your successes, what things bring you joy, what are your values, what is your system, like what keeps you going every day? Then I start digging into my toolbox, and I've got a lot of toolboxes, uh, or I should say a lot of tools in my toolbox, but in the first, of course, being the one that I spent the most time studying, probably the hardest one for anybody to really achieve any level of success in the United States, which is allopathy. That is the, quote, Western medicine. It's not really Western in, in many regards, but we'll call it Western medicine for now. And um, there's a lot of other practices that are also Western, but allopathy is the pharmaceuticals, the surgery, hormone replacement, supplementation. It really only heals the physical body. Uh, yeah, the physical body. Yeah, we'll be very, very clear on that. And we're going to talk a lot more about this later. And what I found from allopathy is that I'm always working against nature, right? It's antihistamine. It's an antiemetic. It's an antibiotic, it's, et cetera. And um, anti-neoplastic drug as opposed to working with nature, not against her. Um, and, and that's where most of the other tools in my toolkit have come from is my desire to work with a person and with her surroundings, as opposed to working against her surroundings and forcing her body to do something that it isn't prepared or, or able to do. So the first 
in my toolkit, and I'm not super experienced with this, but Ayurveda provides a lot of interesting insight. It's about 16,000 years old, next to like, what, 500 years of allopathic experience. Ayurveda has been around for, for tens of thousands of years. And within the Ayurvedic system, we're looking at the chakras, right? The sixth and seventh chakras. I'm at the brain. The pineal is your seventh. The pituitary and the brain are the sixth. Your fifth chakra is associated with the thyroid. And of course, I'm, I'm overlaying allopathy with Ayurveda now. This is not necessarily how to look at it, but it does help me look at things through the allopathic lens. The fourth chakra, right in the center, that's your heart chakra. Then we go to the third, your GI tract. Your second chakra is also related to, to, to digestion and some, um, and some of your metabolism down there. Your second chakra is really related to re- reproductive health. And your first is uh, related to your adrenals. That's your level of safety. And if you think about this as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you got to make sure your adrenals are taken care of first, right? Are your bare necessities met, right? Do you feel like you have a, a, a roof over your head, a warm house, and food on the table? Before we get that figured out, we really can't start talking about the other things. And so the root chakra and then the second chakra is the one that I focus on. That's the um, uh, Svadhisthana chakra. And that, that's associated directly with your reproductive system. And for a woman, that's in your uterus, tubes, ovaries, cervix, vagina, vulva. And if you're a man, that's related to your testes and a lot of the other structures in there. But it's not just a, a physical association, right, with the physical body. There's also, this is also the seat of creativity. This is the seat of, uh, of emotional release and expression. So for people that are in relationships that in, in which they're unhappy, or maybe they're being emotionally or physically abused, for people that are working in jobs that they're not happy with, for people that are in a relationship where they don't have a voice, right? They used to dance and sing and play, and they don't do any of that anymore. These are all the things that are related to second chakra issues. So when I have a patient come in, I ask them from head to toe, what is going on from head to toe? And then we do a chakra load. We look at to see where it's at. And, and almost ubiquitously, people have second and first chakra issues. The first chakra issue is also related to where are you going? What is your dream? And are you going in that direction? Or are you going in this other direction? Because that is also a source of pathology. And so um, you can also test these chakras and how they're spinning. Are they going too fast or too slow? And the lowest chakra that where you have issue is going to start feeding issues up to the other chakras. Again, you can't get things right up here unless you have things right down here, as above, so below. So you can check the chakras with a pendulum to see if it's swinging adequately. Um, I had mine checked right before my board's exams. And it was the first time ever that, that my friend Allie, she was like, man, you're like wide open all the way up. And I just finished the day before my exam, 100 straight days of of Tai Chi and man, does it make a huge difference? But it's not a noticeable difference in the way that a pill or surgery does. It doesn't necessarily come with all the side effects either. It's also not a, a quick fix. It just um, is a slow rebalancing, reharmonizing with your surroundings. So, okay, so the next tool in my toolkit is functional medicine. So, my good friend Jacob Egbert, he, he gave me this metaphor recently. He's also a physician out in uh, Salt Lake City. And he had said, you know, this functional medicine, medicine thing is great. The biohacking stuff is great. But if you have a flat tire on your mountain bike and you, you have a CO2 cartridge, right? You can just keep pumping that tire full and, and just keep buying. Tell the company, the CO2 cartridge company, just send me a box a month. I'm going to need it. You can keep pumping up the tire with those cartridges, but the tire is still broken. This tire still has a hole in it. So functional medicine has its role in identifying perhaps some upstream or even downstream issues that are related to your symptoms, but you can't just keep paying for $1,000 worth of lab work and IV treatment every month for the rest of your life. That doesn't get to the root cause. So functional medicine practitioners, 
they they speak as if they're getting to the root cause, but not all of them are really looking at what is the underlying cause of the hole in the tire. Is it because you're riding your mountain bike on um, on uh, trails that are covered in glass? Like what's going on? You know. So so functional medicine, from my standpoint, starts with Dutch testing. It's a really really popular test that I like to do. And what it does is you you collect um, dried urine. Okay, this is generally a female oriented test. And you collect dried urine for two weeks of your cycle, and then it's on and off for about two more weeks. And you send those results in, and they send back, based on the metabolites, the breakdown products of your hormones from your adrenals um, and your, and your uh, gonads, it sends down this incredible chart of what you have more of and what you have too little of. And it helps you track all the way back to the adrenals. Where are the corticosteroids, the gluco- glucocorticoids, and your sex hormones, including your androgens, where are they going in your body? How are they acting? And then what's being spit out the other end? So this can really help us direct hormone replacement or, or, or uh, herbal therapies to support estrogen, progesterone, pregnenolone, and androgen deficiencies or excesses. So it's a test I really like to do. Um, some other aspects of fun- functional medicine that I utilize are heavy metal testing, and then we, we oftentimes will implement some detox, stool testing, which might prompt us to treat for parasites or treat with pre and probiotics. Um, and then the chronic infection workups like EBV, Lyme, and those are largely going to be autoimmune protocols or, or protocols specific to, to helping the body clear, rid itself of these um, infectious processes. It's, it's hard to call them infectious, infectious processes because they're not acute. They're sort of like living with you. And even energetically, there's ways to get, to get through some of these things. So all right, the next tool in my toolkit or lens through which I look at human health is Chinese medicine. And Chinese medicine, to summarize it in, I'm not a Chinese medicine doctor, but in order to summarize it the best I can, you have to think of things as yin and yang. And yin becomes yang, yang becomes yin. And that balance between these two forces is what drives the qi. It drives your energetic body and and the downstream consequence of these imbalances is all of the things. It's the skin eruptions, it's the digestive issues, it's the cancer, etc., um, fatigue, what have you. So yin is generally a cool, cooling, resting, reflection, um, slowing, digesting. It's very anabolic, and yang is hot. It reflects action, radiance, consumption, catabolic, breaking down, anabolic building up, yin, catabolic breaking down, yang. And I like to think of it as the, the yang being the sun, this radiation of the sun, and then yang, or yin being the, the moon, sort of reflecting and absorbing and receiving. So when we're trying to balance these things out, first off, I've got a, a very good friend who's a Chinese medicine doc, and I refer a lot of my clients to her because she's so good at what she does that it's like, why would I pretend to know all of this? I'll get started, and then I usually have them see her if I can't really quite get things balanced. but. Some foods that you might eat that are, that are yin. Um, and by the way, most people are yang excess. People like me, they're hot. They've got to-do lists. They're going to the gym. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're, they're, they've got so much stuff on their plate. They're maybe not sleeping as much, but heck, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know, that's the whole, that's the caricature of somebody who's in yang excess. And most of us in the United States are there because we have to work like dogs just to pay our mortgage and our car payments. So if, if we want to replenish yin, Cold and cooling foods, banana, watermelon, celery, bok choy, asparagus, cucumber, grapefruit, pineapple, peppermint, green tea, cabbage, apples, strawberries, cheese, cherries, mushrooms. Those are all of our yin foods. In addition, though, there's, act, there, there's a way of living your life that is more yin, that stimulates yin, nourishes yin. And that's slow walks. Paul Check always talks about working in 
versus working out. And this addiction to exercise is so prevalent in our, in our, in our society right now. You got to be jacked with abs and a CEO, and you got to be the best dad, and you got to cook all the meals and blah, 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 blah. I'm speaking obviously from personal experience and that just blows you out and it's reflected in the adrenals. That's a first chakra issue. So instead of working out, you may want to consider working in, which means you're moving in such a way that your tongue and your mouth stay wet all the time. That's a little, a little tidbit that I took from my mentor and friend, Paul Check. So slow walks, you might have some weight in a, in a backpack or something like that, but you're walking slowly. You're observing your surroundings. You're resting more. You're relaxing more. You're doing some, some inward reflection. Cold showers, cold immersion is a really yin-nourishing activity, which is why so many people in our country are digging that practice. It, it's literally cooling, but it, it balances the nervous system in such a way that you get a lot less of the sympathetic and a little bit more of the parasympathetic. And some other activities that I, I recommend to people that are in yang excess, journaling, self-contemplation, reflection, pulling tarot cards, really just being thoughtful, maybe just sitting in silence and looking out the window once in a while. This is, this is critical for a lot of uh, my patients' health, um, whether it's uh, an issue with endometriosis or fertility issues or whatever else. So then the yang, foods that are rich in yang, um, no surprise, a lot of animal products here, pork, chicken, turkey, broccoli, green pepper, eggs, fish, ginger, garlic, spinach, nuts of all sorts, tree nuts we're talking about, chocolate, coffee, lamb, duck, venison. They're like all these hot-blooded foods, you know? And then there's also some foods, interestingly, like onions, that uh, raw onions, if you eat them, they're actually very hot. They're very yang, but if you cook them, they become cool. So this is a whole... I'm trying to summarize yin and yang in a couple minutes here. This is an entire educational program similar to allopathy that I am not an expert in, but I definitely, definitely utilize a lot of these principles when I'm helping people get back to, you know, to be able to harmonize with their surroundings. Salutogenesis comes to mind, right? The body's a natural ability to heal. If you're in yang all the time and your adrenals are skunked, you're not able to heal, period. So if we want to reinforce the body's salutogenesis, we need to provide it with the resources or take away some things that are going to allow it to rebalance into a state of homeostasis. So um, so like with yin, some movements and some activities that would be um, nourishing for yang would be intense exercise. The tongue gets dry. So if your tongue is drying out, you're working out. If your tongue stays warm while you're moving, that's working in. In the yoga world, yoga, the, the hatha, these very fast, you know, downward dog, upper dog, all this stuff, that's a very yang activity. But the restorative yin yoga, it's in the name, is a very yin activity. Um, sauna therapy is very young. And just the a lot of the outward expression can be very young. Kind of think of like the introvert versus the extrovert. Extroverts being the young, introvert being the yin, you know, even though that's a personality type. I get that. All right, um, let's move on to the next tool in my toolkit. So anthroposophic medicine is something that I'm fairly new to, but I've been studying um, Rudolf Steiner's work, as I mentioned, for quite some time. Rudolf Steiner, in case you don't know, he's a 19th century Austrian philosopher. He was born back in like the late, 19th century and died somewhere in the 1820s, I think 1826 or something like that. And he wrote all these lectures. He gave like 6,000 lectures over the matter of a, over a matter of a couple of years. And, um, and I don't know how he did it. I think he was channeling from another place, honestly, because how do you give 6,000 distinct lectures to different groups of people on different topics over the matter of, uh, over the course of a couple of years? I just don't know. 
But from his work, he actually found different people within Austria, Switzerland, Germany, who took his work and created separate disciplines in and of themselves. Waldorf education came out of anthroposophy. Biodynamic agriculture came out of anthroposophy. And anthroposophic medicine came out of uh, anthroposophy. And his collaborator there was a, a woman named Ida Wegman, who's a female physician in Germany at the time. And the way that I, I can best describe the view of the human body and all living things through the lens of anthroposophy is to consider that rocks have these mineral bodies. They're physical alone. There's no life force in a rock. But if you compare a rock to a sycamore, sycamores don't move, but there's a, there's, they're alive. You cut a sycamore down and chop it up into wood, it's no longer alive. There's no more life force in a piece of lumber. But sycamores are alive. There's a life force, what Steiner would call the etheric body. And then Labradors or cows, or chickens, or whatever else. These are animals. They've got the life force and the physical body, but now there's some intention behind their movement. I see grass over there. I'm going to go eat it. I'm thirsty. I'm going to go get a drink of water. Um, I feel like an egg is coming out. I better squat down and, and lay my egg in a safe place, right? So what separates Labradors from humans? Humans have this, uh, and, and by the way, that intention behind movement, that can be summarized. Um, so if, if sycamores through Steiner's lens, sycamores are, are thinking beings, Labradors are thinking beings, and they're now able to feel. They have emotions. And you know that when you look into your dog's eyes. You don't get that from looking at a sycamore necessarily. Although some plants, some trees, some flowers, they do have some astral in there, some astral body, which is that, that feeling like, I feel like you see me. I feel like you're there with me. And, and you know, if you use psychedelic medicines or you've gone into altered states, you may have had some experiences like that. But it's, a, you know, it's not just like you add on the additional layer, it's that there's a bit of a flow between these, these different um, subtle bodies. So what separates the human from the Labrador is that not only can we think like the trees and plants, we're, not, we're, we're smart like them, we can sense our surroundings, and then we can move with intention like the cows and the chickens and the dogs. But now we can have awareness of this entire process, and that's what is lacking mostly in the animal world, not entirely. When we say certain animals are smarter than other animals, it's because they have a lot more I than those animals, right? So humans, we call this the I, the ego. And this is really the, I think, the seat of, the astral would be the seat of the soul. This is really the seat of consciousness. And um, that's an important distinction. I really, really grapple with this. So in addition to these four bodies, which is the fourfold way of looking at human healing, healing through the anthroposophic lens also needs to be done through the lens of, or in conjunction with the nerves, our sensing structures, rhythm, our flow structures, and our metabolism, our breaking down and building up structures. And those three forces are at play in all of our organs and our body as a whole. And the etheric astral and I are going to be in and out of this based on what needs to happen at any moment, any time of the year, any part of our life cycle. Another big part of anthroposophic medicine, or, or I should say the remedies within anthroposophic medicine include eurythmy, which is a series of gestures and movements. It, it establishes rhythm, establish, um, establishes tone. Um, there's a lot of sound and singing involved, and that in and of itself is a form of therapy. And we all know that because when we go dancing, we feel so much better. Eurythmy is, is much more orchestrated, and it's very beautiful to watch it done. So in Waldorf schools, a lot of kids learn how to do some eurythmic dance, and it's really, really fun to watch them. Um, in anthroposophic medicine, they also use a lot of alchemical remedies. These are homeopathic, they're plant-based, they're metal-based, they're dilutions. So similar to, tip to classical homeopathy, um, these are dilutions that are used to treat whichever part of the body, um, whichever subtle body, I should say, 
in uh, conjunction with nerves, rhythm, and metabolism. So one uh, really popular new therapy that's come out of anthroposophic medicine is mistletoe therapy. And this is an ancient technology, dating all the way back to like Hildegard von Bingen. She used to write about this in like, I don't even know, 5th century, 6th century. But this type of, uh, you know, mistletoe therapy, if, you, if, it's, if it's produced in the appropriate way and prescribed and administered in the right way, you can get some great breakthroughs in cancer treatment, for example, and some other inflammatory processes. So there's a lot to learn in this, and I'm not going to say I'm an anthroposophic doc until I'm finished and I feel very, very confident in what I'm doing, but I do utilize this framework when I'm looking at a person. It's not just physical. You're not just deficient in some supplement. You are lacking something in order to reharmonize with your surroundings. Um, okay, so the next is probably the biggest part of my practice, and this really is, I think, so well captured by uh, Paul Check and his work at the Czech Institute. So I, I met Paul and, and Angie, um, his wife, at one of his two wives, um, when she needed a doctor, and I just happened to be a guy on call, and I just met them, and we got to be good friends, and I've taken a lot of Czech's um, coursework, and and he really approaches healing the human body through his four doctor's lens. And that's Dr. Diet, Dr. Movement, Dr. Quiet, Dr. Happy. I'm not going to get super into this. If you really want to take his training, it's super affordable. And it's one of the best things you can do if you're a health coach or any sort of healthcare or wellness professional out there. Diet refers to eating organic food from regenerative farms. They don't use glyphosates. Ideally, they're all, you know, these foods are also biodynamic. You may incorporate rotation diets, um, whereby you're only eating the same protein within, you know, 72 hours, right? So you may go you know, chicken, lamb, cow, and then do it like a vegetarian day, you know, and you just keep rotating that so that your body doesn't become super um, hypervigilant about one single type of protein from one animal source at all times. Um, diet also uh, refers to microbiome. And so this is a direct connection to Mother Earth, um, your microbiome is. Doctor movement is related to flexibility, rhythm, flow, strength, removal of wastes and toxins. It's the movement of all of that stuff, whether you call it prana, chi, or you're talking about some other energetics through the lens of Ayurveda, although that would be prana, and chi related to uh, Chinese medicine. Um, but it's also your digestive. It's your, uh, how does your liver process things in the blood and then split it, out, spit it out through the bile into the intestinal tract. Dr. Quiet refers to sleep, contemplation, meditation, looking inward, and these are things, again, that we don't spend a lot, of, uh, a lot of time on. And so the last one is Dr. Happy. Who are you? Where are you going? What's holding you back? How are your relationships? Do you love your job? What is your spiritual connection to the world? And through these four doctors, Paul always says, the last four doctors you're ever going to need. And, and he's right. These are the four things that matter most. You are not deficient in surgery. You are not deficient in pharmaceuticals. Those are things that you can use in times of desperate need. Um, and sometimes those things are helpful. But if you're not focusing on the four doctors, you're going to end up in a state where you need those things way sooner than you thought. Czech also teaches six principles. And, and again, this, this kind of gets into the four doctors a little bit more sort of uh, concretely. Diet, movement, hydration, breath, sleep, and mindset. And if I were to add a seventh, I'd probably say EMF mitigation because we're swimming now in radio waves of all frequencies. And, um, and that's, that, that makes it very, very hard to get things back on track. So from an exercise standpoint, we need to address an addiction to exercise and fasting. This leads to adrenal fatigue and flexibility is often neglected. So we need some strength. We need some endurance. We need some aerobic capacity um, and we need flexibility. But if we overdo any of these things, we're going to put our state in uh, ourselves in a state of dis-ease as opposed to vitality. Hydration. I always recommend people get a Berkey filter, filter their water out, get all the fluorides out of there, get all the heavy metals out of there. 
add some structuring with an Analima water wand or uh, one of Paul's favorite things to talk about is his giant water charging stations, which are basically comprised of alternating yang and yin stones, yin being dark, yang being, you know, quartz, lighter stones, and um, putting carboys of water, spring water in there and letting them charge over several moon cycles. And his water tastes better than anything I've ever, I've ever tried. Um, also with hydration, you have to consider your electrolytes. If you're just drinking pure water all day long, you're not, you're not going to be getting um, exactly what you need. You can actually throw yourself into a state of uh, disease with that, you know, through hyponatremia and whatnot. This happens in marathon runners, for example. And electrolytes are especially important if you're fasting. So just as an FYI, I work with a company, LMNT, which is Rob Wolf's new company. And uh, there's a discount on my website if you want to try his uh, product out. Uh, breath work is another big one. I do Wim Hof's breathing daily, and um, I do effigy breath work quarterly. If you don't know about effigy, go find my my episode with Sarah Tremoli. I'll put it um, in the uh, a link to that in the show description. Effigy is okay in pregnancy. Wim Hof is not because of the breath holds. When you hold your breath, you you build up CO two. That's actually what triggers you to your brain to want to breathe. Effigy is conscious hyperventilating for about an hour. We used it in the birth of our second baby when she came at home, and it was extraordinary. And I, I do it quarterly. It's, it's one of my favorite styles of breath work, and I recommend it to everybody. Uh, my friend Sarah can totally guide you through that even remotely. So you can go to that episode and listen to it. And if you, if you want me to set you up with her, just send me a message, and I'll happily do so. Sleep. I recommend eight, eight to nine hours of sleep. Um, use blue light blocking glasses. Minimize screen time. All of the sleep hygiene things are being horribly neglected. You know, get to bed before 11. Wake up with the sun, go down with the sun if you can. Um, that's not what I'm able to do with young kids and uh, you know growing a business and whatnot, but I at least try to get eight hours of sleep, if not nine every night. And then mindset. This is uh, really that related back to that first chakra. It's, it's, um, it's related to unhappiness in your position with, in, 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 with your position in life. So are you happy in your relationships? Do you have a voice in your relationships? Are you happy with your job? If you're not doing something that's getting you towards your goal, then what are you doing it for? And I know that that sounds like a privileged thing to say, but you know you can either worry about it now or you can worry about it twenty years from now when you're when you're dying of high blood pressure and and cancer and 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 you know inflammatory everything you know so we have to we have to find a way to make this work and i I totally understand I think that the societal structure we have right now does not lend itself to doing the thing that you're most passionate about um and that's that's another element that i'm you know aspect of of human health and healing that I am very passionate about. So, alrighty. And then, uh, so that was mindset. We said exercise, hydration, breath, sleep, movement. I guess I already got into that. And then the two other things that I, I do talk a lot about, EMF, mitigation, biogeometry. Um, Ibrahim Kareem's company makes great pendants. Um, Conscious Technologies, LLC, Ross Newkirk's company makes this one that I'm wearing right now. It's made of wood and um, has some um, sacred geometry signatures on it. I recommend doing that. I recommend trying to minimize as much EMF as you can. If you're working in a hospital, you're surrounded by it at all times. The people that are trying to heal in hospitals are surrounded by it in every corner. So if you're at home and you have the luxury of turning off your router at night or shutting off your entire power system, I think that that's a good thing to do. Luke's story just had an episode uh, a little while back about um, how he was designing his renovations. When they bought their house, they had to do some big renovations. And he was like, well, screw it. Let's, let's do this thing right. And he has... He's super sensitive to uh, electromagnetic frequencies, so he um, designed his whole house around 
sleep hygiene and uh, minimizing EMF. And uh, I, I really think you should check that out. WaveBlock is another company that makes stickers for your earbuds and your cell phones that actually um, blocks as much of the EMF as possible without compromising sound quality. You can go to waveblock.com and I have a code there as well. It's beloved. You can save 20%. So, all right. Um, two more things on the list. That's sauna. 20 to 30 minutes a few times per week is great. Don't stay in for too long. Don't do like a bunch of exercising in there. Don't bring a book and a podcast. Just sit in there and chill. That's your goal. And the same goes for cold immersion. Um, the way cold immersion works is it upregulates the electron transport chain in your mitochondria by upregulating uncoupled proteins in the mitochondrial uh, membrane. And um, this is especially um, true for brown adipose tissue. Babies have a lot of brown adipose, adipose tissue. It, it, it's a, a way of making your body warm without shivering. And a lot of us, as we get older, we don't have a lot of brown adipose tissue left. But doing cold immersion will increase the amount of brown adipose tissue. And that boosts your metabolism through this non non shivering thermogenesis. So certainly something that I've I've been inspired to do, and I just love it. It feels so good. It's also a great way, as I mentioned, of nourishing yin if you're in yang excess. All right, so uh, let's move on a little bit here. Uh, the other thing about my practice is I very frequently refer out. Like I will tell you straight up, I don't think I'm the right person for you. I think you need to go see this person or this person. I mentioned um, Valerie Jacobson. She's my friend who's a Chinese medicine doc. I send her a lot of people. And then I have another woman I work with, Adrienne Irizarry, who's a um, pelvic steam hydrotherapist um, professional. And she does wonders for my clients who I think would benefit from vaginal um, or pelvic steaming. The reason I mention this is that I don't think that a lot of doctors are incentivized to be humble. But now that I'm on my own, I can do whatever I want. And all I want is for you to be better. If you came to me and I referred you to somebody and you feel better, then I've done my job. But in, in doctor training, you don't really ever get a badge of honor, you know, for saying, I don't know. In fact, you kind of look stupid and they treat you like you're stupid because you didn't have the answer. Even if nobody else knew it, you're the one that was asked and you said, I don't know, let me go find out. And now you're the, now you're the, you're the fool. So I come to my practice with a lot of humility, knowing what my limitations are. I'm really far more interested in making you better than making more money. I've got enough money. We don't need a lot of money. And um, I, once you have a lot of money, you realize it's not equitable at all to wealth, really. The new currency is connection and community. I promise you that. So I'm the first one who will admit, I don't know. And really, the people that end up working with me are those who have, quote, tried everything. Um, I'm generally stumped in the beginning for people that, that come on as you know people who subscribe um, to my services with a package and become members of my private association. Um, but we work on it. We work slowly and people do get better. It's uh, it's more of a long-term solution. If you're looking for a quick fix, I'm not the guy. My practice is not set up like that. I don't, I don't go for volume. That's what insurance companies want doctors to do. See more patients to make more money, which motivates doctors to come up with. They interrupt you first off. They don't even get the whole story. And then they say something like, let's try this thing, right? And you're out the door with a prescription and some blood work. And you're like, what the hell just happened? So <laughs> I tried to... Uh, I try to prepare people for that. Like if you're looking for a quick fix that you're not going to find it here, there is no biohack for a, a really crappy lifestyle. And if it's because you don't have the finances to live a healthy lifestyle, then the problem is not that you're lacking the magic pill. It's that we need to fix our society. And I will do my very, very best to provide you with resources in order to find what you need to rebalance yourself without going broke. So let me talk a little bit about more about vaginal steaming. This is basically, if you meet with Adrian, she's going to put together a blend of herbs for you. You make a tea in a pot on your stove. It's exactly what it sounds like. And then you put that pot underneath a stool that has a hole in it and you sit on it bare bottom with a, a, a cozy 
blanket or, or towel wrapped around you and you sit there again, leave your phone, leave your, leave your whatever outside of this. Just be with yourself. Nourish that yin. And um, you let the steam come up. It, it hits the you know, perianal, the perineal, and the vulva region. It goes into the vagina. It goes around the cervix, in through the cervix, into the uterus, out through the tubes, hits the ovaries, hits the adnexa. It gets even into the peritoneal cavity. And the, and the whole purpose here is to stimulate blood flow. When you stimulate blood flow to an area, it facilitates healing. And so I've seen this technology, as simple as it sounds, help with cervical dysplasia, which is the precursor cells to cervical cancer, endometrial hyperplasia, precursor to endometrial cancer, PCOS, endometriosis, recurrent vaginal or vulvar infections, irregular periods, um, vulvovaginal dryness in some of my perimenopausal and postmenopausal patients, fibroids. I mean, you name it. This is a really great technology. I'm not worried about it messing with the microbiome. If anything, you're actually supporting your microbiome by facilitating better flood blood flow to the area. And of course, there's a carefully selected combination of herbs, which helps to foster the healing. And, um, and it's done through the lens of Chinese medicine. So this is something I refer out to often. And I even told Adrian, I was like, man, I'm losing a lot of business because you're fixing everybody. <laughs> and of course, I'm joking. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's the real deal. I really, really, really love this technology. So instead of learning to do it myself, again, I, I will stay in my lane and I will refer out to Adrian. And one, you know, one other thing I really wanted to comment on is when you go in, you know, to a holistic practitioner, what does the word holistic even mean? A lot of people think it means natural. It's not just natural. It's also looking at more of the subtle bodies that are at play here in the human organism. You know, the etheric, the astral, the eye, what I was talking about before. You know, just because you're going to a naturopathic doctor or a functional med doc or a, quote, longevity expert or an herbalist or whatever, these people are often very critical of the conventional model. And I share their criticisms. But if you're simply trying to find the problem and then providing the secret, you know, secret key that fits that problem, you're not really doing anything better than the medical industrial complex. That's why we're all frustrated. Let's not forget. That's why we're frustrated with the system. You've got a problem. I've got a cure. You've got problem A. I've got remedy A. And that's not what this is about. You know, um, if anything, when we start prescribing these lesser studied mechanisms and, you know, we're prescribing things, they're just not pharmaceuticals. There's some other magic fix like cold immersion or sauna or whatever else. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. If anything, you're just giving somebody something that's a little bit lesser understood um, and lesser studied. So they really can't make an informed decision. You're just saying, hey, don't do what the, the darn doctors do. Do it like the, the naturopaths or whatever. And I'm not picking on naturopaths. There's a lot of people out there that are doing this, everything from lifestyle coaches to, to all sorts of doctors. And so the people that I work with are not looking at this as a one, one and done quick fix thing. Although there might be a quick fix. It might just be you need um, to drink a little bit more water. That's great. But that's probably not the people that are finding me. They probably had somebody out there that was like, hey, uh, are you sleeping more than like two hours a night still? Or are you still doing that whole like uh, coffee and amphetamines thing? Oh, yeah, right. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. And then they stopped doing those things and bam, that was their quick fix, right? All right. So let me give you two example cases as to how I approach um, women's health. So the first one is endometriosis. I get more questions about endometriosis than anything else, apart from maybe like routine pregnancy-related questions. Is it safe to do this? What is, tell me about home birth, whatever. But endometriosis is generally presents as painful periods, painful intercourse. Um, occasionally heavier periods, and occasionally painful bowel movements. It also is oftentimes associated fertility challenges. So you start with a very detailed history. Ask about, do you have a history of eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis of any kind, bloating, inconsistent bowel movements? Can you replicate the pain in some way? Like if you lift your leg or you sit up in this way, is that causing some of the pain? 
that might lead us to think it's musculoskeletal. Do you have f- fertility issues, right? Are you, have you been trying for years and you just can't seem to get pregnant or, um, were you breastfed? This is kind of getting me into the mindset of like, oh, endometriosis might be an autoimmune condition, which I really do think it is. Were you breastfed? Were you born by C-section? Were you immunized throughout your childhood? Have you been given more rounds of antibiotics over your lifetime than you can even remember? Were you on hormonal birth control in the past, especially the pill? These are all things that impact your immune system. And to talk a little bit about the pill, when you take the pill, the pill goes into your intestines. It disrupts the proportion of, of bacteria, good and bad bacteria in your gut. And um, in considering not 70% of your immune system is lining the gut to prevent all of the bacteria and viruses and fungi from going from the gut into the blood, the immune system's there. A bunch of it is there in your, in your gut lining, and it works symbiotically, the lining of the gut does, with, your, with the organisms that are living in your intestinal tract. And so when the intestines of, when the organisms in your intestinal tract get messed up, the immune system gets messed up. And then we have these, these um, downstream consequences related to all of the autoimmune conditions, which by the way, are, are prevalent way more in the West, the developed nations of the West than anywhere else in the world. So all of these questions are related to, huh, if you have the signs of endometriosis and you have some of this other stuff that looks like autoimmune related, whether it's thyroid or skin or whatever else, fertility concerns, then we can get to work. So I mentioned that I thought endometriosis was an autoimmune condition. The reason autoimmune conditions are problematic is because it leads to a chronic low-grade inflammation. What is low-grade inflammation? Well, we have to consider the acute inflammation of me punching you in the arm and your arm getting swollen, right? Are you cutting your finger and the skin starts healing and it's all flamed and red versus chronic? And the four qualities of inflammation are tumor, swelling, rubor, redness, calor, pain, and I'm sorry, calor, hot, heat, and dolor, pain. So if you imagine, low-grade inflammation would be probably imperceptible. It's not like being punched in the arm or cutting your finger. It's low-grade. It's just, there's a slow inflammatory catabolic breaking down of tissue, right? And it comes with dolor. It comes with calor, rubor, and tumor. So in endometriosis, you can take NSAIDs, you can take birth control pills or GnRH analogs like Lupron. Those can be helpful, but they don't address the, the root cause. NSAIDs work by cutting down the inflammation, but you haven't fixed the source of inflammation. Birth control pills in, in Lupron, they can help with endometriosis. And if you have endometriosis, you've probably have been offered these things. They work by suppressing ovulation and suppressing the, the natural production of hormones by your ovaries and your adrenals and and uh, Lupron works by actually blocking the, the production of the gonadotropins, FSH and LH, from the brain and telling the ovaries to produce those, those, um, those hormones. So when you're on GnRH analogs like Lupron, you go into menopause. When you're in COCs, you're effectively in menopause, but replacing it with these synthetic uh, hormones that, that do a lot of other harm. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a minute. So for endometriosis, the other thing you might be offered is surgery. And about 30% of women who go into the OR end up back in the OR. Likely many more have a recurrence of symptoms, but they don't want to have surgery again because, you know, surgery's got risks and it takes time to recover. And, um, and so they just live with the symptoms. They're like, well, I tried surgery. I've tried everything, right? And then they end up seeing me. To, to talk a little bit about some of the benefits of surgery, if you are having fertility issues and you've got all the signs and symptoms, perhaps somebody's even gone into the abdomen and diagnosed you with endometriosis by sampling some tissue. You want to check to see if there's any big cysts on the ovaries. If there is a big cyst on the ovary and has a black and white kind of speckly pattern inside, it's probably an endometrioma, which is pathognomonic for um, endometriosis. It's really the only way to know that a person has endometriosis. 
or it's at least highly suspect without going in there and looking for yourself with laparoscopy. If you've got an endometrioma, it can actually um, uh, be removed to improve the likelihood of live birth, which is pretty pretty great. You can't just drain it. You can't just go in with a needle and drain it and say, pop, it's gone, hooray. They're filled with like a chocolatey fluid, which is old blood sitting in like a serum. And it looks like chocolate milk when you break them open, like thick chocolate milk. So they call them chocolate cysts or endometriomas. And um, the problem with removing it, even though it may improve fertility, is that you actually have the potential downside of reducing ovarian reserve if you, if you remove a whole bunch of healthy ovarian tissues. So there's always risks, benefits, alternatives to all of these things. But since we're talking about surgery, we don't really understand this, uh, this risk between endometriomas and fecundity, which is the likelihood of you getting pregnant, probably is related to this chronic inflammatory process that's going on that is perhaps autoimmune-mediated. If you don't have endometriomas, you can still have surgery, which improves the overall likelihood of spontaneous pregnancy and live birth. But if you've had one surgery, having another surgery just to get all of the, when, when stuff is inflamed, it gets stuck together. So um, that's the reason intercourse can be painful and, and even defecation can be painful because the rectum, the uterus, and the, and the skin behind the uterus called the posterior cul-de-sac can all get stuck together. And so having a repeat surgery is not recommended. Um, and this is especially relevant if you're considering um, IVF. Um, so my approach would not be those things. Generally, people come to me after they've tried those things and they're like, ah, this is whack. I don't want to do this anymore. So we start an autoimmune protocol. We do some protein rotation, which I mentioned before. We, 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 we focus on restoring the gut health. And some of that functional medicine stuff I talked about before can be really helpful. We work on movement. We work on um, resting, nourishing the yin. And as I mentioned, pelvic steaming, can be, it can be, it can, be a game changer. Adrian has told me that she has had clients with stage four endometriosis diagnosed surgically who use pelvic steaming and it resolves like with time, just like that, you know, without, without doing any other harm or, or taking on the side effects of some of these other modalities. Another thing I like to do for patients who clearly have an autoimmune condition is a liver detox. Given that the gut is so intricately linked with the immune system, doing a liver detox um, can be very, very helpful. It really can, a, a lot of the reproductive organs and GI organs, GI organs are, um, are related to digestion, of course. And the liver is kind of like the etheric mother of them all. So I like Quicksilver's Push Catch um, uh, serum. It's a daily serum and tonic you take for 21 days on a fast. You take it, um, it, it contains dandelion root, gentian root, soldago, gigantea. I'm reading this off the page, by the way. I don't have this all memorized. <laughs> Mirror resin, sweet orange essential oil, milk thistle seed extract, quercetin. And then 20 to 30 minutes later, you actually take a binder. This is what's missing from a lot of detox protocols. If you want the liver to do its job and push all of that stuff out as bile into the intestines, a lot of that stuff's going to be reabsorbed right back into the blood if you don't follow up the tonic with a binding agent. And their binder has charcoal, bentonite clay, aloe vera, and a silica extract, which, by the way, we're going to talk a little bit about, about silica, but that's a, a big part of Steiner's um, anthroposophic homeopathic remedies as well. It's a, a derived from quartz. But if you don't follow it up with a binder, then the stuff could be reabsorbed right back into the bloodstream the way it got there in the first place. So you take the binder, it changes your poop consistency, but you are getting stuff out. So you take the serum, 20 minutes later, bam, you take the, the charcoal. And then when you have your poop that day, you're going to notice a difference. It's great. And this part, I, re I was really excited to talk about this because I've been studying anthroposophic medicine now for not very long. But man, when you start to really think about how to treat it, looking at the, the, the physical, the etheric, the astral, and the eye, stuff starts to really, gears start to turn for me. So the way that the anthropos anthroposophists would look at this is you treat the eye. This is an eye issue. And I'll, I'll 
tell you what I mean by that in a second. You treat it with phosphorus, quartz, and mistletoe. Okay. Now I can't tell you exactly why. I will probably in a future solo cast, but those are remedies that treat the eye, not just the physical, not just the etheric, not, not, the, not just the astral, but the eye. And autoimmune disorders reflect an excessively powerful, destructive influence of the eye on the whole, whole organism. Um, in, in his words, the spirit burns up the body. I'm using air quotes here. And so this may reflect a disordered childhood before the age of 28, which is when individuation is completed, right? So as your organs are developing in utero, you're slowly becoming more and more human, right? You're going through this reorganization of cells. You're being in, you know, imbued with these, these special powers, you know, and your brain's developing, your organs are developing, your, your life process is flowing now. And from years zero to seven, this is where the material consistency of the inherited body is transformed and replaced under influence of the etheric body. So you get your first set of teeth during these years. And then years 7 to 14, there's an emphasis on function of the living system under influence of the astral body, right? Which is present in all animals, right? But again, we're, we're going to go further than that. This is when you get your second set of teeth. This is this individuation process. Then years 14 to 21, the individual comes, quote, of age by around age 21. And under the influence of what? The eye. So now we are. The eye is there and we're further individuating. In years 21 to 28, individuation is completing. The soul is fully embodied and individual responsibility takes over. I find that to be such a beautiful elaboration of child and adolescent development. And it's all the way to age 28. We're not just talking about the development of your, of your frontal cortex. We're talking about all the way to the, the ripe age of 28. In autoimmune conditions, we think that there's a disruption in this individuation process. So supporting the eye helps because these autoimmune symptoms and signs, they're thought to reflect this, this incomplete individuation. So that's all I can really say about that. But isn't that beautiful? Like what a different way to view human health as opposed to just a car that needs like a, an oil change, right? So for endometriosis, some other things I do is a lot of second chakra work, a lot of that working in I described before. Um, you can also get a lot of support through full spectrum CBD, I know drugs are bad, right? Well, get over it because CBD receptors are everywhere. They're most prominent in the brain. And for women, the second highest concentration is in the uterus. And then next to that is the ovaries. So, and then your adrenals are in there and men, your testes are in there. Like that's why men have fertility issues when they're using too much cannabis. But um, full spectrum CBD can be very, very helpful in, uh, in any reproductive issues, especially related to the uterus. And then um, uh, fertility uh, is the next example I wanted to give because I do see, I do do a lot of fertility uh, awareness teaching and um, looking at fertility awareness charts and generally people who haven't even heard about it who are just so desperate to get pregnant and have a baby and they don't want to do the whole hijacking with hormones and whatnot at least not right off the bat so start with a careful review of history as always this is that 60 to 90 minutes of just you talking and me listening and asking relevant questions so first off how long have you been trying what's the, the man's sperm count, what's the motility, what's morphology? About 50% of infertility in our nation is due to male factor infertility. It's a little known fact, but men, we got to take care of our swimmers. It used to be that 150 million sperm, healthy swimmers, well-formed, etc., were present in, in each ejaculation. Now it's like 30 million is, million is considered normal. And that's because our food systems are loaded with toxic shit. We're surrounded by EMF. We're just not taking care of ourselves. And it's not always even our fault. We just don't have a better way of living in our country. It's very, very hard to find a very clean environment. The next question is any pain? Are you having any uh, heavy bleeding? When did you um, start Menarche? And, um, and have you been having abnormal p 
periods, whether they're too long of cycles or too heavy of cycles. Has that been happening since you were a young girl? How long are your cycles now, right? Are they widely varied? Are they very regular and predictable? Um, are you familiar with fertility awareness methods? And we'll talk a little bit about this in a second. That if, if, if you know how your cervical mucus changes throughout the cycle, if you know about your cervical, the, the position of the cervix, if you know about the signs that you are ovulating or that you are going to menstruate, that body awareness is really lacking with so much distraction in our world. Not to mention that in, in you know, seventh grade, we were being taught to not have sex because of horrible gonorrhea pictures they would bring up on the projector instead of talking to us about fertility awareness. So that young girls, instead of putting them right on birth control as a contraception, but also to get these horribly inconvenient periods under control. And I, I say that I realize that might trigger some people, but instead of talking about it as a nuisance and a, a dirty thing that has to happen in your body every month and, and focusing on the bad, what if we used it as a teaching opportunity to, to help young women understand how fertility works, right? So sometimes um, for these fertility patients, ultrasound can be very helpful um, along with physical exam. Is there a sign of abnormal body hair you know, growing in the chest, on the upper lip? Um, is there darkening of the skin in certain areas? Are, are the th eyebrows thinning? That could be a sign of thyroid dysfunction, um, and that can absolutely impact fer fertility. Are there signs of it? Uh, you know, is, this, is, is, the, is the patient obese? Is, um, you know, are there signs that you have some uncontrolled diabetes that just was never diagnosed? So these can all be super helpful. And then also looking at structural abnormalities, you know, through a saline infusion sonogram, it can reveal polypoid tissue, it can review um, intracavitary fibroids. Those things can definitely impact fertility because it Im impacts the location and the, the way in which the architecture of the endometrium allows for implantation of an, an embryo. Um, hysteroscopy can be another really great way um, to look at the inside of the uterine cavity. Do you have a bicorneate uterus? Do you have a uh, um, a didelphic uterus, meaning two uteruses, two, two services, two separate tubes, and there's just two structures that never fully fused. Do you have signs and symptoms of a thyroid disorder, either too low or too high? And then history of miscarriages. If you've gotten pregnant, but you've miscarried over and over and over again, was a genetic workup ever done? Is there some sort of trisomy or mosaicism that we've been missing? Robertsonian translocations are a, are a common reason for miscarriage. Now, they're not the most common, but they it would be something that wouldn't be found anywhere else, but nobody did the genetic workup. So this is the whole picture of what I'm thinking as we're talking in this first visit. And I guess with, the, with mention of the genetic workup, I, I did want to you know, point out that the most common cause of miscarriage is one of the aneuploidies, most likely trisomy 21. That's the most, well, actually most likely is, is probably trisomy 22, but trisomy 21 is the one that we all know about. And at the age of 35, the risk of Down syndrome in a baby is 1 in 250. And the risk of the baby having any genetic problem is 1 in 192. So those are pretty low odds. But if you look at age 40, the risk of Down syndrome is 1 in 100 versus 1 in 66 of any genetic problem. Those are pretty good odds. That's a 1% chance. And then at age 45, the chance is 1 in 50, sorry, 1 in 30 of a baby having Down syndrome, right? We're talking about spontaneous conception, no checking the embryo for genetic issues before implantation, none of that. So the vast majority of, uh, of these first trimester miscarriages, uh, I won't say the vast majority, but it's, a, it's commonly due to some sort of genetic issue where the blueprint just wasn't unfolding appropriately and the body did what was smart, was like, oh man, something's not right here. We're going to have to try again. And it, you probably know this, but 10 to 15% of uh, spontaneous pregnancies end in miscarriage, even in young reproductive age women. So 
if you're experiencing this and this is triggering, please reach out and I'm here to support you in any way that I can. Absolutely. I don't mean to diminish the, um, the weight of some of these, these, um, these experiences for women. So are you having regular predictable periods? That's the first question. If you're not, then you're not ovulating, period. Meaning if you go four months without a period and then you have a couple periods over the next month, right? They're not really periods. Your body is shedding because it has no way of keeping all of that stuff packed up in there. And so one really important thing that women can do is the fertility awareness method, which is checking your basal body temperature. It's checking your cervical mucus, the cervical position, breast tenderness, mood changes. Are you feeling like, you know, before your period, the breast tenderness, the mood changes, fatigue, bloating, constipation, sleep disturbances, those are all signs that something rapidly is shifting within your hormonal balance. So it's really important to just be aware of how your body is changing as opposed to going to the doctor and saying, fix me. I think it is really important to have some responsibility over this. If nothing else, you know that your fertile window is only like five days out of the month, right? And then all those other days, you don't have to be on hormonal contraception. You can have sex all that other time. And the way that that works is that your body releases an egg. That's the transition. And that's what's called ovulation. And that's not just in the middle of a 28-day cycle. It could be for you at day, I don't know, seven of your cycle, or it could be day 21 of your cycle, whatever, you know, whatever. But you won't know until you're tracking it. So fertility awareness tracking will allow you to look at how the consistency of your cervical mucus is changing. So from the start of your period, day one of your cycle, you have bleeding and then you have spotting and then the cervical mucus becomes a little stickier and then it becomes a little creamier. And then when you're about to ovulate, it becomes like an egg white consistency and they, it sticks between your fingers. It looks just like egg whites. At the same time, your basal body temperature will creep along, you know, in, in your normal baseline and then bam, right before ovulation, you are, you're going to see a spike and it's not going to be a big spike. It's going to be maybe just 0.1 or 0.2, but it's going to be a noticeable spike over your baseline. So tracking it allows you over several months, I'd say give it at least three months and you'll see a definite pattern. Um, and if you don't, then we, then we get to work. That's what I want to mention about that. Oh, the cervical, cervical position. The cervix actually goes from more posterior to more like squishy in the, the cervical os, the opening kind of opens up a little bit. And, uh, and it is aiming towards the opening of the vagina right around the time you ovulate. The whole thing is magical. So when you ovulate, well, before you ovulate, your eggs, um, your follicles and your ovaries are going to all start developing. You know, there's going to be like, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 total between the two ovaries. You're going to see these little follicles developing if you were to ultrasound every single day and they grow and grow and grow. And then suddenly, this is the follicular phase, the brain is releasing LH and FSH. You're going to see that one of those follicles is bigger than the rest. And that's the one that wins over and is the one that is going to crack open right at the time of ovulation and release the egg which gets picked up by the fallopian tube. And if there is sperm present, the sperm will be all over the place in the tube, in the uterus, in the cervix, in the vagina, looking for the egg. And if the cervical mucus is the right consistency, the door is open, the sperm are going to swim through, right? And if the egg arrives while the sperm is there, bam, you've got the magic. So what that means is that you can have sex on, let's say, uh, let's say that you ovulate on day 15. You can have sex on like day 10, right? Or day 11. The sperm are in there. The egg comes out on day 14 or day 15. And now, and now you've, you've got conception. So it doesn't need to be on the day that you see that LH spurge when you, on your pee stick. That test is terrible. That, 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 that method is really, really in inconsistent. And sometimes you've missed your window already. 
So if you wait to see the spike in the, in the temperature, or you wait to see the LH spurge on the P-stick, you may have already missed your, missed your window. But if you're tracking, then you know like, aha, any of these three days I can have sex, we can have sperm available, and when I ovulate tomorrow or the next day, then some magic can happen, right? And this is, of course, assuming that all of the other factors are, that we mentioned are, are in place, right? Like there's not a big giant fibroid or a polyp or whatever in the uterus that's going to prohibit something from, from happening. And for men, you guys, you guys can eat oysters, you guys can eat uh, organ meats, you can eat fermented cod liver oil. Like these are all the things you should do. Stay out of the sauna, keep your underwear off like for a couple months while you're trying to get pregnant um, because your sperm are not as healthy as, as men's sperm were many, many years ago. So um, you need to also be doing your part. Can't emphasize that enough. So if a person is cycling, meaning you are having regular predictable bleeds, then, um, but you're still struggling with pregnancy or you have some other symptoms like the abnormal body hair, um, which is called hirsutism. You have sleep disruptions, like you're not getting enough sleep. You have a hard time falling asleep, libido, lubrication, all those things. Then Dutch testing, this is back to that functional medicine approach, can be super helpful. If the adrenals are haywire, then forcing the, the body to become pregnant without first correcting the adrenal or the thyroid or the pituitary issue, it's not a great idea. Remember, we're not just talking about the ovaries and the uterus. You've got the hypothalamus, which communicates to the pituitary, which communicates with the thyroid, the adrenals, and the ovaries. And they're all communicating with one another, right? So anywhere in that stream, the HP, let's see, we'll call it the HPTAO, hypothalamic, pituitary, thyroid, adrenal, ovarian axis. And that's not even the whole, the whole gambit. We also have to consider the role of the gut in our nervous system and, and everything else. So without first fixing this adrenal issue, we're going to have problems perhaps in pregnancy because you are in a state of depletion, forcing the body to do a very energy expensive process of growing a baby and then going through childbirth. So another thing you might be able to pick up in this uh, process is, wow, the chart looks good, but man, I, I'm still not getting pregnant. I don't know what's happening. There could be something called a luteal phase defect, which is actually a lack of progesterone in that luteal phase when after you've ovulated and you're your body is either conceived or not. You might even be getting your egg and sperm together, but they just can't be sustained because there's not enough progesterone. This is common in our society because the, the, the factors that impact progesterone in that luteal phase are stress, excessive fasting, excessive exercise, obesity, inflammation, wink-wink endometriosis, um, PCOS, all sorts of things can cause, um, can cause luteal phase defects, nutri- you know, nutrient depletion, like just not eating healthy, you know, nutrient-rich foods. So for those types of um, patients, I'll, I'll often recommend, um, first off, let's address the underlying cause of that. If you're working out too much, you're addicted to exercise, we need to slow down in order to support this pregnancy. Um, but otherwise, you can, uh, for some patients, I will recommend progesterone supplementation I will, uh, or something like Vitex, which is a more natural way of boosting the, uh, the body's progesterone. And then you can, you can get some additional support through DIM, um, which is a, one of the uh, indole 3 carbonyl, I think is... One way or the other, DIM and indole-3-carbonyl are, are effectively the same chemical once you take it into the body. Red raspberry leaf tea can support fertility issues, full-spectrum CBD, again, for the reasons I mentioned before. And then, as always, working in second chakra work, for some people, even seed cycling can be very helpful. Uh, you know, I, I already mentioned this, but again, oysters, fermented cod liver oil, organ meats for the man, vitamin D, vitamin C, niacin, copper, zinc, manganese, that's, you're going to be rich in that, and that's all relevant to producing a lot of sperm that are swimming in the right direction and they're, they're fully formed um, morphologically. So you've probably been a little curious, why is this guy not talked about pregnancy and birth? I'm here for the birth chat. Well, 
let's talk a little bit about pregnancy and birth because I do answer quite a few questions about this in my IG lives and TikTok lives and almost every one of my podcast episodes, we touch on this a little bit. So like I did with your conventional doctor visit, go back to that, that last time you're at your OBGYN and, um, or if you're a man listening and you accompanied your partner to the OBGYN, it's that crinkly paper, you're pantsless. There's some stranger who wants to just forces your legs and stirrups without even really saying much. They might be like, hi, I'm Dr. Riley. All right. I heard you got pregnant or something. Uh, well, let's just take a look, all right? And they get their big hands in there and like there's not really a consent process and there's like a strange nurse that's kind of looking over things and it doesn't feel good for anybody, but this is the best we got, I guess, right? And I'm saying that kind of tongue in cheek. Well, I don't think it's sufficient. I don't think the way that we do anything in clinical conventional OBGYN practice is sufficient. Birth is sacred, pregnancy is sacred, and these are really vulnerable times that we're seeing patients. I see birth as a transformation of spirit. This is a rite of passage. This is not just a medical thing like, you know, you're growing a new organ system. Even though that's how it's treated, that's not how I view it. And I don't think we're serving women well for that reason. And this is really why the midwifery care model needs to be supported as the default maternity care model for the majority of women. And I stand by that for sure. A big part of what I bring to the table in the maternity care that I provide is shared decision-making. I see, again, I, I mentioned this, but I want to reemphasize that the role of a doctor is very simple. It's your job to provide risks, benefits, alternatives without using coercive language and supporting a woman in her decision, regardless of what the intervention is, even if they don't accept your recommendation. That means that if you think that they need a C-section to, quote, save their baby, they have the right to refuse the C-section. You can think they're crazy. You can think that that's, that's not what women should do, but that's also not on you. And most women aren't going to make that decision. But that is an important distinction is not your job to be captain of the ship. So a couple common things that we do in maternity care is we, we do a lot of ultrasounding. And especially in the first trimester, it, it, this can be quite dangerous. You know, it's non-ionizing radiation. So everybody says, you know, it's, uh, it's probably not that bad, right? And, and we don't have any data to support it. But actually, outside of human pregnancy, we actually do know that that first trimester ultrasound, especially Doppler, can be very, very um, problematic. And Doppler is special because it emits in a continuous waveform versus the pulsatile ultrasound that, that is generally used for creating images. Doppler is looking at, um, it's, it's, it's producing a much higher uh, frequency of, of uh, sound wave. And that can impact orga organogenesis. If you think about it, there's trillions of cells moving in synchrony for their own divine purpose. They're bumping into one another, excusing themselves. Oh, excuse me, sir. Excuse me, madam. Right? And they're all getting into position. And every moment of this beautiful orchestration is, it's just like, it's divine, the whole thing. Like, how is this happening? They're, they're dividing and moving in synchrony based on some divine orchestra. They're moving into place as to where all these cells are going to live and continue dividing and continue supporting the growth of this human. And if you've, uh, if you've ever looked at like a, a video of this happening, it's the blastulization, it's the division of these early cells, and then magically a zebrafish appears, right, over so much time. I don't know what the gestation period is for zebrafish. It's probably like a couple of days. If you look at that, and you imagine like, man, if anybody were to bump those cells one way or the other, it'd kind of mess up their flow, right? And then I think about, um, if you compare those videos to uh, chymatics videos, if you haven't seen this, it, what that is, is you, you have like a tin plate, and you play... You, you vibrate the plate at different frequencies and you cover it with like sand or salt. And these elaborate patterns form on the plate. Depending on if it's 512 or 528, you're going to get a slightly different, that's the frequency, 512 or 528 frequency. You get a slightly different pattern. 
And it just it makes you wonder, like, what is the spark of life? Is there some unseen force that's putting this to, to play? Some people would say it's God, like their, their Catholic God. It could also be source. It could be spirit. But regardless, if we can get these salt crystals to organize in these incredibly elaborate fashions, and actually it can be done three-dimensional too, if you see them do this in, in like gels or in water, water blobs, you'll actually see these incredible patterns form inside the water droplet. It's quite, quite remarkable. And that's just by vibrating these materials at different frequencies. So it makes me really thoughtful about these high-frequency waves and what impact that may have on disturbing this incredibly beautiful process of all of these cells differentiating and organizing in these intricate ways. So we've seen this outside of the human body in, in, in cells and in other animal models, but nobody's been willing to say that this is probably dangerous in the first trimester. I'm willing to say it. I actually don't think we need to be doing so much ultrasound. Um, occasionally glancing can be really helpful. And, and you know, the, the next question is, well, then if you don't think that's important, what really is needed? I don't know. Sometimes ultrasound is really helpful. Sometimes labs are important. Sometimes genetic testing can be really helpful. It really depends on what you know about your patient. And when I do that, these, these talks with them, I want to know everything about them, their values, their goals. And if they wouldn't terminate anyways, even if they had a baby with some sort of um, life-limiting condition, then perhaps genetic testing isn't appropriate, right? It puts youth, the mom through, you know, the, the pain of an amniocentesis or a CVS or blood work over and over and over again. And, um, and it's not going to change their journey anyways. So it's not fair to say that all of these things need to be done. Now, if a person has a history of chronic hypertension or really bad preeclampsia in their previous pregnancy, then maybe, you know, it would be really helpful to have some baseline preeclampsia labs and to look at what their hemoglobin, hematocrit, their platelets, their liver enzymes, their kidney function. Let's look at all of that first. But that's not the person that I'm necessarily talking about. And that's the standardized way of doing it for everybody, even for a person who's healthy as a horse. Um, and ultrasound can be helpful. You know, I do like doing the formal anatomy ultrasound at the halfway point of pregnancy because I think it's really helpful to know, okay, this baby's uh, got normal fluid or I don't see kidneys or I don't see a bladder, right? That's actually helpful for me to be able to counsel my patients as to what additional next steps might be, regardless of what my inclination is, as to like, oh man, that looks bad or that looks good. It may not matter to the patient, but they they don't know what, they can't make a decision about what to do or even perhaps plan for a baby that's going to die in the first hours or days of life if they don't know. So I will actually provide that as a part of my counseling, but it's not something you have to do to be in a doctor's care from my experience. I think from a lab standpoint, in the very least, I think a, a baseline CBC, a urine dipstick to look to see if your kidneys are pumping out a bunch of protein now versus later, which might be a sign of developing preeclampsia. I think um, if you are Going to be attending a birth, I think having an HIV and hepatitis serology panel drawn would be helpful. A syphilis screen can be helpful, especially if you're in a state with a really high incidence like California. Um, hemoglobin A1C can be super helpful. It's actually very, very sensitive to determine how well a person's blood sugars have been controlled, um, especially if you're suspicious for diabetes in this patient, right? If they're a PCOS patient or they have, you know, they're obese, they have um, uh, any other signs of, um, of diabetes or heart disease or anything like that. So some other considerations if they have a history of preeclampsia, if they have, uh, you know, let's say chronic hypertension, EKGs, uh, maybe a baseline 24-hour urine protein. Like these are all the things that you can consider, but it's no, no, no patient ever has to do everything that you say. And if, but if, if, you, if I present it in a way because I'm concerned and I've gotten to know you so well, most people are going to be like, wow, tell me a little bit more. And then we have a conversation as opposed to I'm driving the ship and I'm going to tell you what needs to happen.
right? That's, that's not really what this is all about. And it's, it's at least not what it's about for me. One thing I haven't said is that in, in the first time that I talk to a person who's afraid of having a hospital birth, I will talk, I will ask them their story of their birth. Storytelling has, has died off, died off long time ago. And we can learn so much from telling stories, right? This used to be how we, we pass down our lineage, our legacy. And nowadays, like nobody cares about the story. Just give me like the four second TikTok, right? <laughs> so I love to ask, like, tell me about your last birth. How was this baby conceived? This baby presently, like, was this a pregnancy you were desiring? You know, we don't just go and say, congrats, you're pregnant. Maybe this person didn't want to be pregnant. Maybe this was a totally unintended pregnancy. Maybe they'd had their tubes tied. Well, they weren't really, we weren't really tied tubes anymore, but perhaps the partner had a vasectomy and the vasectomy really didn't work all that well. You know, it's unlikely nowadays how they do them. They're not super reversible, nor are uh, the sterilization procedures for women. But, you know, you just don't know. So tell me about how was this baby conceived? Were you having rapturous sex with your partner? There was a lot of life force at play when this baby was conceived. Or was this sort of like a last ditch effort to grow our family and to try to heal the wounds between me and my partner? I mean, there's so much that can be elaborated in storytelling. And um, and that's a big reason why I have my podcast. And I always ask people about their stories. I also like to ask women, have you ever been to your to a birth? If it's your first pregnancy, especially, what are your fears? Are you excited about this? You know, what is, what is your what is your impression of birth altogether? And so, um, and so that's that's like I think that's the the good first prenatal visit. And that's how I generally will talk to most of my patients about all of those things. And then and then of course we get into the lifestyle stuff. Everybody wants to know what's what should I do to make my body strong? Well, this starts way before you get pregnant. We can't can't polish up the uh the hood of the car with a with an engine that's broken down inside, but we can do our best. And prenatal vitamins are not my favorite, but I have found Full Well. I really really like their products. Um fullwellfertility.com. Um code beloved10 gets you 10% off there in hint. And uh, they are our sponsor, so <laughs> so please do your best to support them, so we can keep making this show. But I do really like them, um, even though I have that little that little caveat there. Um, I don't like a lot of the prenatal companies, prenatal vitamin companies. So I generally will recommend the fermented cod liver oil. I will recommend organ meats, and I'll recommend uh, bone broth throughout pregnancy. And you're going to get so much nutrition from those foods alone that um, you're going to be very well covered. But of course, all of the other dietary things, making sure you're not eating glyph- glyphosate residue covered food get it from a local organic farm from your farmer's market get to know the farmers how was this food made what was your relationship to the soil and the same goes for livestock and chicken and lamb and eggs and and dairy and everything else if you drink dairy go for the raw dairy give your raw dairy to your kids not two percent crappy ultra pasteurized milk that's my opinion you can do what you want (laughs) um hydration we talked a little bit about that movement go through your four doctors the six principles perfection is not the goal here you just do your best. You're not going to go from, from uh, you know, 20% living a great life to 100%. It's just not realistic. Don't put that pressure on yourself. You've got enough to think about and to be, uh, to sort of plan for here. So just do your best. Meditation's important. Art therapy. Paint your belly. Have your partner paint your belly. Sing to your belly. Connect with your baby. Sing to your baby. Baby's in there, but the baby can hear your voice. That's why the baby's rooting and looking for you whenever the baby comes out right after birth. And really connect. Just put your hand on your chest and a hand on your belly and listen. And you will know your baby's there. And you'll be the first one to tell me if something's wrong. So I always ask, do you feel like everything's okay? Whether it's in childbirth, early in pregnancy, or whatever. Sauna. Stay out of the sauna. 
in the first trimester at least. I'd say stay out of the sauna for a prolonged period of time for the whole pregnancy. The first trimester, fever, sauna use, um, those types of things can lead to, lead to neural tube defects and all kinds of other malformations. You don't want that. That's when all those little cells are getting into order. And if you're pounding it with this radiant, hot sauna heat, you could possibly disrupt something. It's not a good look. And you become very dehydrated, and hydration is very important in pregnancy. Cold immersion is actually probably okay. There's a lot of women, especially in the Scandinavian countries, Norway, etc., who swim in cold, icy, cold ocean waters all the time, whether they're pregnant or not, and they're doing just fine. So it's probably okay. Of course, we haven't done any randomized controlled trials, but um, there is some thought as well, can it shock my milk supply? I haven't heard that from anybody that I know in the Scandinavian regions. Um, but I think it's reasonable to consider that as well. If you're already struggling with milk supply, cold immersion therapy is probably not the best thing to do, at least for prolonged periods of time. But, you know, maybe some cold showers instead. Don't do any of the detoxing while you're pregnant. Remember, your body is going to be, from the detox itself, your body's releasing the toxic stuff into the bloodstream, and that's f- circulating everywhere. The liver is going to try to grab it, process it, and spit it out into the guts for you to poop it out. But a lot of it's still going to get to the baby, and you don't want your baby to be exposed to all that stuff. So no detoxing while you're pregnant. Get all of that out of the way with me before you get pregnant when we're in that preconception phase. That's the best time to do it, because that'll also help improve your fertility, as I mentioned before. And then lastly, <laughs> we're not detoxing. We're, not going to try, we're trying not to add any additional toxic stuff. So look at your skincare, your hair care, your detergents, your soaps, your cleaning agents, all of your beauty products. Make sure you're not putting horribly toxic stuff on your skin. I can't emphasize that enough. So the, what about the question of home birth versus hospital birth? I answer this question all the time. So for me, there's a good way to have a hospital birth. But the ideal hospital birth is going to mostly be laboring at home. Go into labor at home. If, you, if you're struggling with like, oh, I'm 40 weeks, why am I not going to labor? Clean your kitchen floor. Bring your knees up to your chest, squatting down like that, opening up your sits bones. Those are all things that can stimulate the the labor process. And also starting at 37, 36 weeks, a, day, uh, a glass a day of red raspberry leaf tea. There's some other agents that'll help facilitate labor, um, but movement's a really, really big one. And that ideal hospital birth, once you get into the hospital, no intervention, the less absolutely necessary. And again, it comes down to what are your goals? If you don't care about having a C-section, if you just want healthy mom, healthy baby, the hospital is going to be great. If you don't want a lot of intervention, then you might want to consider a home birth. And I'll get into our home birth story in a second. Intermittent auscultation, which is instead of putting those uncomfortable straps all over the belly to listen to baby's heart rate throughout the entire childbirth process, we're going to listen once in a while through at least a full contraction or two, try to establish a baseline and make sure that we're hearing some accelerations. We can do all of that with intermittent auscultation without a woman being strapped to the bed and have all these monitors hanging off of her. The other reason to keep them out of bed is they can move freely. Again, that keeps the baby's cardinal movements going. You know, you move, the baby moves. It's this ballet, this dance, and the baby's working through and you're contracting and breathing through and getting on the Swiss ball and getting up and getting into into like a squat and then you're getting in the shower and leaning. Maybe you're hugging and dancing with your partner. Movement. One reason why epidurals can be so problematic is that it limits your movement because most hospitals are not doing walking epidurals any longer. And then, of course, this is the time to, to be nourishing yourself with the best food and water possible. So bring it in with you to the hospital if you can. Um, when I met Paul and Angie Check at, at their birth in the hospital, I was their, their doc. And um, Paul had brought all of his water and all of their own food and everything because the hospital food and water just sucks. That was actually when I first tried his water. It was like, try this water and try the water that comes out of the, out of the nurse's station. I was like, okay, whatever, man. And I didn't know who Paul was. 
But I was like, holy smokes, where's this water from? And he's like, it's my own water from the spring and I've charged it and it's awesome. And I, I couldn't agree more, Paul. <laughs> In the hospital, also prioritize your own comfort. You know, bring your own pillow, bring a robe, bring your pajamas, whatever it is that makes you feel safe and comfortable and warm and cozy, that's going to facilitate natural childbirth. It really is. There's a, a great resource called The Birth Deck, which I have a, a, a partnership with. If you go to thebirthdeck.com, use code BELOVED, and you'll save 20% on this box of cards, which has mantras and aromatherapy techniques and acupressure techniques and, and all these things that the partner can do for, for you while you're in birth. And, and uh, it's an awesome resource, and it's so beautifully done. My wife and I went through a couple cards every night as we were getting ready for our birth, and it was really helpful. It helps you develop the language. Like, how does... How does your partner want to be encouraged? What language don't they want you to say? You know, how do they want you to coach them? And maybe they don't want you to say anything at all. Maybe they want to just be in silence and, and with their thoughts, connecting with your baby. Um, water birth is offered a lot of hospitals. That would be ideal for me. And then that golden hour, what we generally do when a baby comes out in the hospital is baby comes out, gets swept away to this little warmer thing. Mom gets tidied up. They do the repairs. They yank the cord to get the placenta out. They, they change her, her underwear for her and put a pad on there. And then they wrap the baby up, clean the baby off, give the baby shots, put goo in the eyes, and then the baby's wrapped up like a little burrito put right on your chest. And it's like, what the heck was that? This flourish of activity was totally unnecessary. And um, instead, what if we just sat back and sort of rejoiced in like the majesty of what just happened? This, this, the birth of a baby just happened here. Amazing. In between hospital birth and home birth, there's also birth centers. I'm, I'm not I'm not actually a huge fan of birth centers. I, I am a, a medical director of a birth center up in, in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, because the state of Indiana is in such disrepair in, in the maternity care space. Um, but I think generally speaking, if you don't want to have a hospital birth, a home birth is a good step down. But on the other extreme of this is the home birth experience. And my wife and I had a home birth for our second, mostly because we were worried about what was going to be done to us or the baby's going to be taken away because of all the COVID restrictions and to this day, our hospital doesn't allow visitors over 12, so we wouldn't have been able to bring our baby girl, our, our toddler at the time, to the birth. But I digress. We, um, my wife's water broke at 5 o'clock. She was working out in the yard and hadn't been feeling great, but we were reseeding our yard. My mom was there, and her husband was there, and my mother-in-law was here, and we were all just kind of waiting. And, and sure enough, on I think it was, the, it was the due date, actually, 40 weeks on the dot, um, Steph, her water broke at 5, and then it was like, oh, that's why you haven't been feeling well all day. And Water broke at five. Her mom did some Reiki. She laid down and got some rest. There wasn't a ton of really bad contractions, but they were picking up. So we called our friend Sarah Tromoli, who I mentioned before. She's the one who operates Effigy Breathwork. And Sarah came at six and we started breathing together. In the meantime, I'd gotten the tub set up in our, in our bedroom. We had gone through the whole sort of dress rehearsal, you know, a couple of days before. So we had to move the shelves over here and got the tub set up. And Steph was still folding laundry by the time that Sarah got there. And then Steph... Um, and I laid down on her bed and we did this effigy breath work. And I went to outer space as I always do. Steph became very grounded and very connected with her body. And our midwife came and checked in on things. And she had a midwifery student and a, a local doc, um, Rebecca, our friend, who was uh, just attending because she wants to start attending home births in the area. And um, and they were downstairs. And, and then like 40 minutes into this breath work, now we're at water breaks at five. Now we're at 640. An hour, 40 minutes later, Steph asked Sarah to leave and asked the, the midwife and the, her team to come up and as soon as they got up there, Steph was like moving her hips and I was coming back into my body and, and like with like one push, the baby was out and she was bigger than Penelope, our first. And uh, we, so we didn't even get in the tub, but man, you get to roll over and just enjoy being together with this new beautiful baby that smells so amazing. And she's rooting and trying to breastfeed and, 
you know, a couple hours later, everything was cleaned up. We were in, in bed watching TV and holding this baby and eating some delicious food our friends had made and dropped off for us. And, you know, the placenta was in there, but the placenta, placenta apparently came out like 30 minutes out, you know, if that, it was probably hanging out in there. And then, you know, it just kind of, you know, it kind of expels itself and we kept it attached for who knows how long. And, and Everly is perfect. Everly is perfect. If you want a picture, go to my Instagram. I'm sure I've got a nice photo up there. So the, the contrast between hospital and home birth couldn't be emphasized greater. It's, it's, um, it's magic. It is a, it is, it is totally, it will totally change your entire view of the birth experience. If you've had bad births in the past, I feel like in some ways home birth can be very, very healing. And if you're not ready for that, then the birth center, you know, experience might be really helpful, you know, where you're not really immersed in the full medical establishment. And perhaps you have a little bit more leeway as to how you can move and what you're going to be, quote, allowed to do. I hate that word allow because nobody allows you to do anything. You have autonomy to do what you want to do. But um, that might be a nice middle ground. So if you want more details, you can always reach out and I can, I can elaborate a little further. So what do I think about induction of labor? Well, we always use language like, baby will do better outside than in. Or, and this is not just docs. This is also midwives. Let's just get things moving along. Let's get that baby out. You could, your baby could die unless you, we get you delivered. That's oftentimes the OBGYNs, not the midwives so much. And so the reality is that, and, and, and all of these things lead to either a, yes, a C-section way before it's needed, or it leads to an induction, which often ends in multiple days of, of frustration and discomfort, and sometimes even ends up in C-section as well. So, so the reality is that induction is, is very rarely the best option. It's all about risks, benefits, alternatives, counseling, counseling, counseling. That's, that's where it's at. There was this, this study called the ARRIVE trial, which is a Grobman et al. 2018 paper. You can Google it. It compared elective induction of labor at 39 weeks versus expectant management, meaning these, these women in this cohort are going to get induced at 39 weeks. These ones, we're just going to let them go and see what happens. The study did find a lower C-section rate in the induction group, a lower risk of preeclampsia, of course, because the pregnancy didn't go further and would have maybe developed a hypertensive disorder later, um, but no, no differences in maternal or neonatal outcomes, which is impressive. But the problem is it didn't account for the emotional hardship that comes with the long induction, more exams, more interventions, et cetera. And, and women still deserve a choice. It's, it's not truly informed consent if we're only focusing on the results of the ARRIVE trial or some nebulous, often coercive language like the fear-mongering tactics, fear-mongering tactics I mentioned before. And, and those tactics are used to encourage early induction, right? So it's almost never the best option, very, very rarely. And what I always say, and I, I, I borrowed this from Maren Green, one of my friends, she's the uh, head of Indie Birth. The burden of proof always lies in those who wish to deviate from nature. So, you know, take the case of like, you're at 41 weeks and my doctor's making me be induced, you know, get in, get induced because they're worried about the baby. Like, well, why are they worried about the baby? Is the baby growing well? Because if the baby's growing well, then there's like a 1.3 out of, out of 10,000. That's like point, what is that? 0.001% chance of stillbirth. And if the baby's, even if the baby's growth restricted in less than like third percentile at 41 weeks, the risk is 58 out of 10,000. So that's a very low absolute risk. And with that information, would you be able to make an informed decision? I would say that that would actually be an important part of counseling. But instead, we're just like, baby's going to be better out than in. And we use this nebulous language that makes the person feel like they can't say no. And that's, that's coercion. I hate to say it, but it is. So if, if our role is to provide risks, benefits, alternatives, and then support them in their decision and not use coercive language, then we're failing at that all over this medical industrial complex and in, in the way that we care for women. So if you do end up with an induction, how is it done? 
Well, there's mechanical with a balloon or pharmaceutical ripening. It just helps soften the cervix, helps get some contractions going. There's some other herbal remedies like cotton bark root and blue cohosh can help with this. But if you don't want those things, you can also stimulate nipples, go and masturbate, have an orgasm, go have sex, play with your puppies, kiss your kids. Anything that will stimulate the endogenous production of oxytocin is going to get labor going. And like I said, generally speaking, spontaneous labor is always going to be better than induction. But there are certain medical comorbidities in which, in which inductional labor may, may, be, may be beneficial. So I'll just leave it at that. And then, and then I also wanted to comment real quickly on um, vaginal breach. So babies, since 2000, the term breach trial, we've seen a precipitous drop. It was already dropping, but a precipitous drop in the amount of uh, vaginal breach births that were happening, especially in our country. But it, the, the ramifications of this trial, which were, f- it was a flawed study, to be honest, did not consider all of the things. And I'll get into that. But since this breach trial came out, it's, it's suggested that breach babies were in danger compared to, in danger if they were born by vagina than if they were born by C-section. Well, they, they followed up the same patients. And it was true. That's what they found. But they followed up these exact same patients and they found that there was no difference in long-term outcomes for these babies. So safety is a relative term. Like what they, what they were looking at was, did a baby die? Did, a, did the baby's, uh, did the baby need to be in the NICU? Did the, did, did the baby have any um, immediate signs of, of maybe some brain injury or whatever else? That's the concern. The problem with the term REACH trial was that when they, they, they did a poor job of randomizing, they also include a lot of cephalic babies. They, I guess they didn't know they were REACH and they included them in the trial. There were some twins that were included. There were also some babies, some of which who died, who actually had congenital malformations. And if they were born by vaginal breach, we would say, oh, it's the vaginal breach. But what this study actually, what these longer term outcomes found is that the outcomes or the, the conclusions of the term breach trial were independent. These differences in the two groups were independent of mode of delivery, period. So what I always tell people is safety is a relative term. Is breach safe? It really depends. If instead of only looking at APGAR scores, NICU admission, neonatal death and brain anoxia, and we, and then we included impacts on maternal mental health and overall well-being, maternal neonatal bonding, trauma from the routine characteristics of C-sections, delayed breastfeeding, immobility after C-section, and the dangers of future pregnancies after a C-section, like abnormal placentation, etc., that dreaded risk of uterine rupture, I'm not, so, I'm not sure that it's so clear if it's safe or unsafe. I think that all of this information needs to be provided so women can make informed decisions about how they have their babies. And, and I stand by that. I really do. I, I just hosted the Louisville Breach Workshop here with David Hayes and Rick Safries. And if you are interested, find my, er, my interview with them on my old podcast, The Beloved Holistics Radio. And um, you, can, you can really get a feel for what this breach training is like. But what happened after the, the term breach trial is that residents, you know, which are OB, OBGYNs in training, they, were, they weren't taught how to attend vaginal breach births, which could... You know, most vaginal breach babies just come out butt first, the head comes out, and then that's it. Just like a cephalic baby. But sometimes there'll be like a shoulder gets caught or the arm gets kind of wrapped around the baby's head and you just can't get through the pelvis. So there are certain techniques like the love set maneuver, um, like these rotational maneuvers. Love set's more of an extraction technique, but rotational maneuvers in order to help disimpact the baby's head and rotate just slightly in order for the baby to slip through the pelvis. These types of, of maneuvers were just not taught anymore, which is why no doctors out there, even if they want to attend, they don't know what they would do if there was a, a you know, a, a nuchal arm or something like that, so or an extended neck where the chin gets caught in the pubic symphysis, something like that. So since we're not teaching it, of course, now we say it's not safe. Now it's not safe because we haven't been teaching it. So it's a catch-22. So fortunately, people like David Hayes, Rick Safries, Stu Fishbein and his team, 
they're all offering breach trainings around the country for any birth workers, especially midwives and doctors. Midwives are the ones that are attending this. So midwives are going to carry breach forward and you're going to bring this back. So I don't think it's inherently unsafe. It's just a matter of risks, benefits, alternatives. And if you've had a couple of vaginal, uh, vaginal births in the past, you're probably a pretty good candidate for trying this out. You just need to find a provider that's done some training. And, and I have done quite a bit of training compared to other doctors, I will say. All right. Um, a couple other topics I wanted to cover. Postpartum period. This is the three to six months period after the time that a baby comes. This is a time for rest and nourishment. Nourish the yin. Going back to the earlier in the podcast. And it's, it's important to remember like what you see on Instagram is not birth. Birth is messy. It's beautiful and it's messy. So something that's really helpful after postpartum in order to recover ste- pelvic steaming to facilitate blood flow and healing in the whole pelvic, all pelvis, all those structures, sits baths, connecting with your newborn. These are the primary things that I want you to think about. Yin foods. You can find my list above. Um, information in media fast. Just be with your baby. Be with your partner. Like This is such an important bonding time. There's this really great book called The First 40 Days, which provides you with a sort of a dietary plan. And then there's another book, A is for Advice, The Reassuring Kind. Those are the only two books I recommend for people, but they have so much insight into the into the, in the powerful possibilities of what happens just after birth. Breastfeeding support is important in this, in this uh, you know, part of the process. It is, breast milk is the perfect food for babies. But if you can't breastfeed, there are some women who just have latching issues or the baby just isn't taking or milk doesn't come in in great supply. There's a great um, recipe for a homemade formula. Um, you can call it formula, but it's, it's all a natural ingredients using some raw milk and whatnot in the Nourishing Traditions baby book which I lent out, and I don't know who I lent it to because I can't find it. But it's a great book. Used it a lot when we were in our uh, postpartum period. And one of the biggest pieces of advice, and this is actually before you even have your baby, is to focus as much on your relationship ahead of the birth as the birth itself because there's huge changes to your partnership. There's huge changes to you as the birthing woman. This baby's coming through a portal, and you're all transforming in spirit in how you relate to one another. So focusing on that and remembering that the moment of the birth is going to pass by in a second You've got years and years and years and years of living together and developing your own relationship and your own dynamics that's going to change after the baby comes. So focus as much on that. That was a, a tip from Augustine Colebrook, and I'm forever grateful <laughs> to her for that when, I was, uh, when we were approaching our first pregnancy, or our first birth, I should say. Prioritize sleep now. Little babies are little slugs. They just lay there, and you feed them when they're hungry, and they go back to sleep. So get as much sleep as you can. Pelvic physiotherapy is a great resource. It helps realign the pelvis so that the bladder and rectum aren't being pulled off midline. I did. I had an awesome interview with, um, with um, oh gosh, what's her name? It is, well, I'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes for you. But she has uh, the, the Birth Healing Summit. And um, I'll think of it in a second and I'll interrupt myself, I'm sure. But she, she talked a lot about this, where we think about stuff falling out through the pelvis because the muscles are weak. But really, it's a tension of muscles on one side or the other that actually pulls or it could be a, a skeletal issue as well. It pulls the tissue to one side or the other and causes the bladder and the rectum to fall out of alignment. This can lead to incontinence now or later, prolapse, certainly down the road, and pain. These muscles, the levator ana, they spasm and they cause a lot of pain. You can get introidal pain, intercourse, pain with intercourse, etc. So tongue and lip ties are also something that come up in this part. Stretching exercises can help with la- and uh, latch support from a, a trained um, lactation consultant can be really, really helpful. Um, the stretching exercises actually can often be sufficient that you don't even need to have the babies go for a phrenectomy, um, which is a snipping of that tissue that's really tight there. To finish this up, I am, uh, I'm wrapping up. This is getting long-winded, as always, but um, there's some other miscellaneous things related to birth I wanted to talk about. And that is, first off, TOLAC. The, what we're talking about here is there's a, a prior incision in the uterus. 
if it's in the lower part of the uterus, the lower trans, uh, the lower uterine segment, the risk of uterine rupture in a subsequent pregnancy, if you want to try for a vaginal birth, is less than one percent. Meaning, it's a greater than ninety-nine percent chance that this dreaded thing is not going to happen. But everything is risk benefits alternatives. It's not a contraindication to home birth in my practice. But many, um, many people have a hard time finding a provider that will provide care to a person with a history of C-section due to state licensing issues or whatever else. So um, continuous fetal monitoring, I mentioned this before, it's uncomfortable. It has not been validated to improve neonatal outcomes. As much as we want to rely on it, it doesn't tell us much. It doesn't tell us when a baby's doing great. It only tells us when there's absolute chaos on the horizon, which is why we use it. Um, but to have a woman on a continuous monitor for the entire two or three day induction is just, to me, is ludicrous. And it leads to a lot more problems down the road. GBS, we get a ton of questions about GBS. So again, there's risks, benefits, alternatives, but 10 to 20, 30% of women are colonized naturally by group B strep. It's a type of bacteria, streptococcus, lives in the vagina, lives in the anus. It crawls all over your skin, all over your vagina. And if you're, if you're colonized, there's a 50% of uh, chance of passing group B strep to the newborn. And of those babies that get colonized, 1% to 2% will develop early onset GBS disease, which is very serious. Don't get me wrong. But it's a very, very low risk. So if, if you're concerned about the impact of antibiotics on the mom or baby's microbiome, that needs to be weighed against a very, very low risk of early onset GBS disease in the newborn. And I'm not, I'm not diminishing the importance of us treating GBS disease in the newborn. It's just that every woman is going to want risks, benefits, alternatives. And just to say you have to have this, that's not fair. That's not how this works. So if you are GBS positive and you're having a baby, and by the way, we check generally at like, I don't know, what is it, 36, 37 weeks, something like that. If that's positive, you can always check before birth. And if it's negative, then I would just go with the negative. But that's not a COGS recommendation. It's an option if a person is really determined not to have antibiotics. It can make you feel a little bit better as a provider and quote, allowing them to go without the antibiotics. But if you do get antibiotics, it reduces the risk of that uh colonized newborn developing early onset GBS disease from 1% to 2% to about 0.25%. There honestly aren't a lot of great studies that have been published though, clearly, like with many things. So if, you're, if a baby does develop early onset GBS disease, it's, it's nasty. It carries a 2 to 3% mortality rate, meaning 2 to 3 out of 100 babies who get this disease are going to die. And that's, um, that's bad. And it's up to 30% if the baby comes at less than 33 weeks. So this is something we definitely need to, to, to talk about. Again, I you know, might go for a C-section if I knew it was going to save my baby. It's not my job to tell a woman that she has to have a C-section if it might save her baby, right? Based on limited information. It's, there's not a right and wrong here. There's no binary. You can make a recommendation, but it's ultimately your, your job to support them. Okay, Rogam. Ooh, this is a nice one. Risk of alloimmunization is around 15% after the second delivery of an RH positive fetus to an RH negative mother. And so what happens here is the mom doesn't have a certain antigen on her blood cells but the baby, due to the father being Rh positive, that's like the B positive, A positive, whatever. If the father is, let's say mom is A negative and dad is A positive, right? The baby, if the baby has the, uh, the antigen, the Rh antigen, which is the positive insignia, then mom, who doesn't have that, will see it as a foreign body and will develop antibodies to it sometime in pregnancy or even in childbirth. So when they get pregnant again, now they have antibodies against the Rh antigen on blood cells. And if the new fetus are also Rh positive, thanks dad, the mom's antibodies that she has circulating from the first pregnancy can attack the blood cells of this new fetus as it's gestating, causing profound hemolytic anemia, high drops, and perhaps even death. So what we do is we give, we recommend this shot of Rogam. The risk of this happening is about 15% 
in the scenario I just described. It's reduced to it, it's decreased to one to two percent with the administration of postpartum rogam. I've seen the consequences of this alloimmunization, and it is nasty. Like it gets really bad really fast, and there's not much that can be do. There are some things that can be done once you start to see this hemolytic anemia developing. So even though it is not a guarantee that it's going to happen, again, present risks, benefits, alternatives, and support them in their decision. That's my practice. All right, GDM, gestational diabetes mellitus. This, is, this plagues pregnancy in the United States. So we talk so much about alcohol and all these other drugs, and we forget that the most toxic substance to a gestating fetus is sugar. If you have a hemoglobin A1C of greater than 10%, there's a 25% risk of congenital fetal anomalies, mostly complex cardiac defects, CNS anomalies like anencephaly, spina bifida, and then skeletal malformations like sacral agenesis. Big problem, having uh, poorly controlled blood sugars or insulin resistance in, the, uh, in pregnancy. So that doesn't even, those anomalies don't even include the, the likelihood of, higher likelihood of stillbirth, um, issues related to placental insufficiency, increases uh, for preeclampsia, complications related to fetal macrosomia like hyperbilirumidemia, organ, organomegaly, respiratory distress syndrome in the newborn. Like these are all really, really, really important considerations. So for me, when all this lifestyle medicine comes into mind, I want to start this stuff early on so that you don't go into pregnancy with some degree of insulin resistance. I want you to be super good at processing sugar. Um, for the mom, this also, uh, well, a, a couple other things. It impacts fetal growth. It impacts your ability to heal and recover. If you have really, really bad tissue due to nutrient issues or insulin resistance, then healing from that C-section is going to take a lot longer if it heals at all. You might end up with wound resistance and evisceration. It, it can be really, really bad if you don't have the ability to heal tissue well. Um, there's also a high risk of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. It can impact your kidney function. It can cause heart issues, retinopathy, all of the things. The way that we diagnose it generally is we give this really crappy stuff called glucola. It's this processed sugary junk. We give you a 50-gram dose to screen, and then if you're positive on that, then we give you a 100-gram dose. Now you've got 150 grams of this junk in order to confirm um, that you've got this, this issue, this gestational diabetes. You could also just do a one-time 75-gram dose and just be done with it instead of doing the two-step. But you know, if you don't want to do that and, you're really, and, and, and you just want to let the cards lie where they are, that's also okay. If you don't have any risk factors, it's unlikely those tests are going to be, pump, be positive anyways. So as long as you're taking care of yourself before and during pregnancy, you're not going to develop gestational diabetes. It's just not going to happen because you're taking care of yourself. Managing gestational diabetes. Uh, oh, by the way, if you don't want to do the sugary drink, you can also just check with a glucometer at home. Like for about a week, you get fasting and then you get one hour after each of your meals. And we look at that and we can determine whether or not you'd benefit from some insulin therapy or uh, even an oral, or an oral agent. ACOG does recommend going straight to insulin, just for the record. So management of gestational diabetes, it's all lifestyle for me, but I did mention insulin and some of the oral agents. And if you're really interested in a good book, Lily Nicholas, she's a registered dietitian, has two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and more specifically, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Fabulous. She's going to be coming on the podcast soon, and I'm super stoked to meet her. She is a gift to the world that I live in. <laughs> um, and then the last thing about birth really related stuff is the vaccines. I'm really not going to get into this too much. It's probably a better topic for a later episode. If you want more information, one of my earliest episodes on this podcast was uh, Paul Thomas, MD. He's a pediatrician out in Oregon, and um, he has done quite a bit of research, even published on some of the, uh, the downsides of vaccines and the, the sort of just pummeling kids' immune systems right off the bat with vaccines. So I'm, our second, excuse me, our second baby doesn't have any vaccines, not even a birth certificate, actually. <laughs> different story for a different day. But um, Penny, we stopped after a couple 
couple months of vaccines and it was like enough and enough is enough. The only reason we're going to the pediatrician is to get her shot with shot with vaccines. And she's looking at you wanting her dad to keep her safe. And then I'm holding her down and telling it's okay. And then some stranger in a mask sticks her with a needle. Like, no, thanks. We're not doing this anymore. But that's my, that was, that's me. I'm a dad. And that was my decision I made with my wife. So I mentioned this a little bit before, but I, I think it bears repeating that informed decision-making is a central component to medical bioethics. And in the age of COVID, a lot of doctors have been losing their licenses because they've been, quote, making people vaccine hesitant by providing risks to getting the vaccines. I don't have the answer, but if we can't be curious and ask questions about this, we are heading down a very slippery slope. So it's an abject violation of these principles of, bio, bio, of uh, bioethics to threaten my livelihood and ability to practice as a punitive measure for counseling patients, not just on the benefits, but also the risks of vaccines. And I'll just leave it, to, leave it there. I do get a lot of questions about Tdap in pregnancy. There's very little evidence to support the Tdap. It's the acellular pertussis vaccine in, in uh, pregnancy as a means of preventing whooping cough. I'm sorry to say that. I know it's against ACOG's recommendations, but the evidence is not, not that great. And that's my job is to review evidence, not to follow guidelines widely. Vitamin K, this is that shot they put in the baby's, the baby's leg after birth. And um, the idea here is to prevent the unlikely scenario of intracranial bleeding or, or bleeding within the layers of the skull and the skin overlying the skull in the early days of life. The risk of this happening is way less than 1% chance, even without the vitamin K injection. It's about 80 in 100,000 live births, lower or, or middle-income countries, or 9 in 100,000 in high-income countries like the United States. So the, the possibility of having some benefit from vitamin K is extremely low. So whenever parents say, I don't want that, why are we fighting them on it? They've made an informed decision knowing that the, the risk of this is, is so low. And you don't, you know, like the baby comes out, the baby wants to see and feel mom and dad and hear her and smell her and be with her and, and look at her for the first time. And we, we stick them with a needle and we, we inflict pain moments into coming into the world. And I just I don't know how we can't see this from a 15,000 foot view. Yes, it's good for some babies. And yes, it has saved some babies, but it's also traumatizing them as soon as they come out. And I, I just have a hard time with that. So, so if you are pregnant or your partner's pregnant and you're considering an alternative to that because you still want to mitigate some of that risk, there's oral vitamin K drops um, that you can pick up on Amazon. There's a really nice company that I'll, I'll link in the uh, description below so you can check those out. And that's what we did for our first and the second. We just said, screw it. And she didn't bleed into my brain. Pretty amazing. All right, the last topic. I know this one's getting long, but the last topic is menopause. I'm not going to be able to do a deep dive in here in this episode because we've already gone way over time, but I want to start by saying we need to reframe menopause and aging. This whole anti-aging movement is, is ludicrous. You start as a maiden, you then become fertile, and you reach you know, your, your pubescence, and now you're in the mother archetype, and then you reach menopause, and now you're in the crone archetype. There is a beautiful orchestration of these archetypal, these, this archetypal alchemy taking place throughout your entire life, and we discard the crone. We over-sexualize the maiden. We've got all, we're all sorts of mixed up here. So I think we need to reframe this. Because the vast majority of people that have a hard time with menopause are people who are deathly afraid of getting older. They want the lubrication. They want the vaginal rejuvenation surgery. They want to get the Botox and they want to look and feel like they're 25 again. And that's not their fault. That's because society has made them value, made them feel like they are only valued if they're young and they're still in the workforce. And, they're, and they've got perfect boobs, right? So what we do with these, these crone, this crone archetype, is we discard our aging parents into nursing facilities. We, we just put them aside. They're not useful to us anymore. Talk about the power of storytelling. 
So I think we need to embrace aging. This anti-aging trend, it, it just reflects our whole issue with mortality itself. Like, if I could just upload myself into a supercomputer, I'd be good. I, I could live forever, like Ray Kurzweil. He and I could just play pickleball for the rest of our life in cyberspace. <laughs> so Stephen Jenkinson, the uh, author of Die Wise, he's the, uh, the founder of, um, of Orphan Wisdom. But he said, grief is the midwife of your capacity to be immensely grateful for being born. So in my eyes, you know, I, I do a lot of hospice work. Death is not to be feared. Death is a privilege. Now, our, our incapacity to, to embrace life, our death is a reflection of our inability to embrace life. You can't live life to the fullest if you don't accept that this magical period of time is going to come to an end. And you have all the time to enjoy all of the indulgences and all of the love possible while you're here. So having said that, if you're menopausal and you're looking for some some products that might help you get your mojo back. There are some biome-friendly lubricants like Natural MediLube. Working on getting them on as a show as show sponsor, but I can only just say go and check out their website. They're doing some really good work. Pelvic floor dysfunction for the wide variety of things like prolapse and incontinence and whatnot can be very helpful. Find a really good pelvic phys- pelvic floor physiotherapist. If you want to go the route of estrogen, you can get some bioidentical um, estrogen and progesterone. If you don't have a uterus, you can skip the progesterone. The topical estrogen in, the, in a cream or ring or tablet can be put into the vagina, can be spread around the urethra, can be you know, spread around the vulva, can help to really rejuvenate some of the, the tissue there. There's a whole bunch of vaginal um, steaming techniques and herbal remedies that can be useful as well. And you know, hormone replacement therapy has a really bad rap. A lot of people argue hormone replacement therapy causes breast cancer on this stuff. It really hasn't panned out like that. If you really look at the data, I don't want, I can't get into it here. It's just too long of a conversation. But um, I did do a podcast episode on this topic specifically and on hormone replacement therapy for treatment of, of menopausal symptoms. You can check that out and I'll put that in the in the description. But again, what are we treating with hormone replacement therapy? It's sort of like giving you know somebody the option uh, to have physician aid in dying. Are we ju- are we treating their suffering, their physical suffering? Or are we treating a spiritual suffering with a medicine that helps shorten your life? I I don't know, and and I am a, a, a I am a supporter of autonomy. And I still ask questions about like, what are we actually treating? So if a woman comes to me and she wants these things, I'm happy to help prescribe biodynamic hormones, or not biodynamic hormones. Did I say that before too? Bioidentical hormones, excuse me. But only after talking to her about like, what does this mean to you? Like, what are you trying to get back? And if it's a, if it's a desperate grasp to the maiden archetype, maybe there's other ways to actually treat. We're not treating you with estrogen. We're treating your, your spirit here. And, and, you know, I won't go into more of it here. It's just something that I've been very thoughtful about. And if you're having those, those pesky vasomotor symptoms, the personal summers, you can manage that through nourishing the yin, working in. There's a lot of herbal remedies, homeopathic remedies, pharmaceuticals can help with that, like SSRIs and SNRIs, all really, really helpful for, the, for, those, um, for those symptoms. And I'll do a later episode on menopause itself. I think that that would be really helpful. That just about wraps it up. Thank you for making it through that long-winded monologue, but I did think it was really, really important to tell everybody about what a truly holistic you know, OBGYN practice looks like. I don't have all the answers, but I will definitely find them for you. <laughs> and I will refer out when necessary, when I realize I've reached my, my sort of boundaries. So if you want to find me and work with me um, as a patient, you can find me at BelovedHolistics.com. I also have a weekly newsletter for anybody out there, whether you're a coach, another type of doctor, or a potential client, you can sign up for that newsletter. It'll kick off a little email journey. You'll get a free gift as well, a uh, free ebook that I put together 
as um, some guiding principles in order to, in your pursuit of empowered healing and birthing on your own terms. So get that at belovedholistics.com. Also, if you're a birth educator, if you're a midwife, a doula, health coach, a Czech practitioner, acupuncturist, Chinese medicine doc, whatever, and you, you find that your clients often need some consultation or to be seen through the lens of allopathic medicine, I am an MD, of course, <laughs> and uh, you don't want them to necessarily have to go to the clinic or the hospital. One scenario would be like you're a midwife, your patient has some high blood pressures. If you send them to the hospital and now they get the diagnosis of gestational hypertension, even if the high blood pressure is just from the, the sort of nerves of being in the doctor's office, now, bam, they've got that diagnosis from a doctor in the system, and now you've, you no longer can care for them as a midwife for the home birth, for example. So you consult with me. I provide you all the information. You counsel your patient. That's kind of how my collaborator program works. So you can find that. It's a reasonable monthly fee you pay. At the gold level, you also get peer review. That's a, a twice monthly thing that I do with all of my collaborators and um, gold level collaborators. And we get together, we share stories, we share you know, successes, we share some failures, and we help all comers get better in their practice. And I feel like that's one of those things that we can all use more of is the camaraderie and the collegiality. So um, you can find the collaborator program. Uh, and again, it's open to all types of midwives, all types of doctors, all types of practitioners, just to have uh, an MD in your back pocket to curbside whenever you have any questions. I also order labs imaging medications for at the gold level. So you can find all the details at belovedholistics.com. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast, The Holistic Vigilant Podcast. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really, really helps. Thank you. And of course, we can't continue doing the show without our sponsors. If you want to try out Full Well Fertility, their prenatal vitamins are amazing. They have a a nerve balancing uh, product as well and some vitality tonics for both men and women who are struggling with fertility. You can go to fullwellfertility.com, enter code BELOVED10 at checkout, save 10% on any of their products. And uh, Fit for Birth is our other sponsor. So James Goodlatte is coming on the show in a couple of weeks. Look forward to that, publishing that interview and hearing your feedback. If you're a coach or if you're a pregnant woman who's looking for some private one-on-one coaching, you can get all of that at Get Fit for Birth. That's getfitforbirth, all spelled out, dot com. And uh, I will put all references and links to anything that I thought was relevant from this recording into the description of this podcast. I'm not doing podcast show notes anymore. It just was extra work that was, I don't think, really converting much. wasn't really getting many people, you know, to the website necessarily. So I just put it all in the uh, in the podcast description. That's where people are getting their their references now. So, alrighty, thank you so much, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Love you all, and I will see you next time on the Holistic of a Joanne podcast. Take care.